Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and why it's great to get an offer for your kidney that you can't refuse. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. One of the classic divisions within the effective altruist research community has been that between the folks who think we should explicitly aim to improve the very long-term trajectory of humanity, even if that means it's harder to tell whether we're doing so successfully, and others who think that we should try to make the world better today in concrete, observable ways, uh, even if that means working on problems that are smaller in scale. Uh, the former school of thought is usually called long-termism, while the latter hasn't really had a name, but has sometimes by contrast been called near-termism. We've directly discussed long-termism on the show several times over the years, uh, including in episode 6 with Toby Ord back in 2017, uh, the second 80,000 Hours team chat with Benjamin Todd, uh, that was in September of 2020, uh, and in episode 90 with Ajay Kotra in January of this year. But we haven't had an episode directly about this other broad school of thought, which cares more about having positive impact sooner uh, and being able to tell whether what you're doing seems to be working. So Kieran and I asked around to see who would be a great guest to talk about this topic, Uh, and the word on the street was that we should talk to Alexander Berger. Alexander has been a philanthropic grant maker for 10 years, uh, and was recently promoted to lead all of Open Philanthropy's grant making under the Global Health and Wellbeing umbrella, which is Open Phil's term for non-long-termist approaches to doing good. Open Philanthropy, for those who don't know, is a major foundation which uses rigorous, effective altruist-flavored thinking uh, in order to have more impact with their giving, Uh, the same way that 80,000 Hours tries to use that kind of thinking to figure out how people can have more impact with their careers. Uh, Perhaps unsurprisingly then, uh, for a few years, they've been 80,000 Hours' largest funder, uh, though our grants don't fall under the global health and well-being umbrella that Alexander is involved with. I'm so glad we've finally gotten to addressing this topic. Uh, I'm very glad we chose Alexander to do it with. Uh, we had so much material to cover in this interview that it easily could have become a mess. But to my great relief, it worked out as we had intended it to. Alexander was also able to give a robust case in favor of near-termism, uh, but then also later explain the arguments for long-termism that he finds most persuasive, uh, which is a sign of someone who really knows their material. If you'd be interested to work on Alexander's global health and well-being team, uh, he highlights some amazing job opportunities uh, in that program in the last third of the conversation. Uh, we also talk at the end about his decision to donate his kidney to a total stranger, uh, and why we both think it should be fine to compensate those who offer a kidney to someone they don't know. All right, without further ado, here's Alexander Berger. Today, I'm speaking with Alexander Berger. Alexander is co-CEO of Open Philanthropy, where he leads its global health and well-being work. The Global Health and Wellbeing Umbrella is a broad one, which includes causes across scientific research, policy advocacy, and global development. Right before that, Alexander worked as a researcher at GiveWell, where he was one of their first hires and was working on evidence reviews and cost-effectiveness analysis for potential top charities as early as 2011. In 2011, he also donated one of his kidneys to a total stranger and published an op-ed in the New York Times on why it should be legal to sell your kidney if you so choose. And before all that, Alexander studied philosophy and education policy at Stanford University. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Alexander. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. I'm a longtime listener, so it's really a pleasure. I hope we'll get to talk about the case for working on programs where it's more practical to demonstrate what impact they're having, as well as roles that are currently available at OpenPhil. Uh, but first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, so I'm the co-CEO of Open Philanthropy, which is a foundation that currently gives away a couple hundred million dollars a year in a way that aims to maximize our impact. So it's probably familiar to a lot of your listeners from the effective altruism community because we're sort of part of that community. I currently lead our work on what we've recently decided to call global health and well-being, which includes giving to the GiveWell top charities, a bunch of work in scientific research, policy, and farm animal welfare, and also some of the new causes that we're exploring going into now and I'm hoping to talk about later. 
we're growing pretty quickly. And so a lot of my work is around managing a team that tries to find new causes for OpenField to expand into as we're trying to give away our main donors money over the course of their lifetimes. Uh, my colleague Holden, who I think has been on the show before, leads the rest of OpenField's work, which is primarily aimed at making sure that the long-term future goes well. And we call that long-termism. In terms of why I think it's important, I think the global health and well-being work comes down to the idea that there's a huge amount of really cheaply preventable suffering in the world. And the idea that by applying some sort of basic analysis and putting resources behind it, we can do a lot to prevent that kind of suffering. So kids die from malaria for lack of a few dollar insecticide-treated bed net. Something like a billion people around the world are still living very close to subsistence levels, even as mean global income has risen by like 100 times over like the last couple centuries. And, you know, billions of people now lead middle class lives while we have persistent poverty. And of course, billions of farm animals are treated horrendously every year in ways that are totally in principle preventable. You know, it's not like we need farm animals to survive. And so I think all of these problems have interventions that are actually quite cost effective. And so you can end up having vastly more impact on them than you might think would be possible if you were just sort of starting out naively. And, you know, we think that against these problems, we can make sort of concrete, measurable progress and learn and improve over time in a way that can sort of set out a new model for philanthropy. And we see that as sort of an inspirational set of problems to put resources against where we can just make a lot of concrete progress. So it sounds like OpenPhil in the past, you've got you've had all of these different problems that you're making grants to, towards solving, but they've been kind of mixed together in some sense or all part of all part of OpenPhil. And now it's slightly fissuring into these two different umbrella groups, one which is focused on the long term future and another which is focused on helping people in the, in the, in the here and now, which I guess you're you're in charge of. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable interpretation, although for us, it feels a lot more continuous than that. For a long time, Holden has actively overseen the sort of long-termist work, which includes work on artificial intelligence risk, biosecurity and pandemic preparedness, and our work to grow the effective altruism community. And I've run a lot of our work on scientific research and policy and advocacy, and I, I manage Lewis, who runs our farm animal welfare team. And so we've already had sort of those structures, but I recently was promoted to co-CEO and we recently decided to sort of name sort of my part of the organization, Global Health and Wellbeing, to better acknowledge um, like that cluster of ideas rather than just define it sort of against the long-termist cluster of ideas that, that hold them mostly overseas. Yeah. So I guess you've got the global health and development stuff under you, as well as the, the farming and warfare and some scientific research and some, some other issues as, as well. What do you actually do on a, on a day-to-day basis? Because there'll be so much going on, you probably can't track it on a, on a detailed level. Yeah. So you know, in terms of the actual grant-making work that most of our program officers work on, I'm not very involved at this point. We, we delegate a lot to the people who we hired to make those decisions, and we aim for them to have a really high level of autonomy. So in terms of like Lewis's farm animal welfare work, Lewis is really the person who's coming up with our strategy there. And similarly for our science team, like that's, you know, that's on Chris and Heather primarily and not sort of in my head. A lot of what I have actually spent a lot of the last couple of years working on is managing this team of researchers that we're now calling the Global Health and Wellbeing Cause Prioritization Team. It's devoted to finding sort of the next causes for OpenFill to expand into. And so actually part of why, the reason why I wanted to come on today was that, you know, we're hiring for people to join that team. And I think it could be a really good fit for some of your listeners. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, we'll get back to that towards the end of the interview. Yeah, as I said in the intro, you started at GiveWell really in the, in the early days before the term effective altruism was coined, and I suppose only a couple of years after GiveWell was founded. Yeah, how, how did you how did you get involved so early on? Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I sort of picked up a Peter Singer book in college, and I think I had a pretty, maybe not a standard for EA, but a pretty standard overall reaction to that, which was feeling like, wow, these arguments are sort of compelling, but it's not like I'm not like inspired. I'm like being beaten over the head with a stick. Um, and 
So I, I sort of wanted to resist them and say, do I really have these kinds of obligations? Am I really supposed to take big actions for the global poor that you know have sort of no real connection to my life? And I wasn't sure how to think about it. I, I felt like I kind of had these naive ideas of maybe people who are like living in poverty are actually just totally happy and they're not stuck with the concerns of modernity or something. And so I felt like I sort of couldn't resolve that kind of question sitting in Palo Alto. And so I took some time off from school uh, and I went and lived in India for a little while. And my experience there, I, I think, did show that there actually are a bunch of things that we can do to help. But the specific thing that sort of brought me into effective altruism was every day on the way to the school where I was working, I would walk by these kids who were begging and I really wanted to do something to help the kids. But I knew that if I just gave them money, that would be an incentive not to be in school. And so I was like, okay, what I will do is like, when I get back to the States, I'll find the best charity I can and give them a couple hundred bucks. And you know, I still have to walk by the kids every day though. I still felt really terrible about it. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to find what charity I'm going to give the money to. Cause maybe if I focus on that, I'll feel better. And so I think I literally Googled best charity and I found the give well, this, this would have been like 2010. And I found the give well website on like the first page of Google hits. And I remember, I don't know if, can I, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I remember just thinking, holy shit, like th- this is exactly what I wanted. And so <laughs> I, I really cannot remember another product where I've had that reaction of like, wow, this was literally what I was looking for, but just like better than I could have imagined. And so I remember I sent an email like while I was still in India to a friend being like, holy crap, like this would be my dream job. But I can't imagine like they had like three employees at the time, like I could never work there. And so I ended up when I got back to the States donating a little bit and, you know, Ellie emailed me like, dear Mr. Berger, thank you so much for your generous contribution. And I was like, well, I'm a junior at Stanford, but I love you guys. Could I volunteer? And so I ended up, you know, spending part of a summer adding footnotes to their website and, you know, adding page numbers to citations. And after I, after college ended up joining. And I think, yeah, when I joined there, maybe there were four other people at GiveWell. Yeah. Yeah, you're not the only one to come in through searching for best charity and then finding GiveWell and then and then finding everything else. That's actually a surprisingly common origin story. Yeah, maybe that'll come up more later when we're talking about how much of EA should focus on uh, global health and well-being type stuff versus long-termism. Right, yeah, and that's a, it's, a, it's a great data point. All right, well, we'll come back to more of the work that you've done over the years towards the end of the show. But let's push on towards the real meat of the, of the conversation, which is talking about, I guess, the school of thought that until now has been called near-termism, but both of us probably are pretty happy to rename. So basically, with this conversation, because you're in charge of this entire huge umbrella of projects at, at OpenPhil, you seem like a, maybe the best person to talk to to understand what do people who are focused on improving the, the here and now in the, in the biggest way uh, actually do? And what are the arguments for and against taking that approach to, to having a, re- a really large impact as opposed to other ways that people try to get an edge? And there is a risk that this episode could get a little bit messy or a bit confused because we're hoping to give a, an overview of, I guess, quite a broad intellectual tendency within effective altruist thought, which is kind of <laughs> one way of putting it would be it's everything other than long-termism. But of course, just as long-termism is a pretty broad school of thought and there's lots of motivations that people have for going into that. Everything else, or near-termism, or I suppose global health and, and well-being, is also a very broad school of thought with a lot of factors going into it. Yeah, I think that's totally right. But that's it. We'll, we'll do our best to, I suppose, make reasonable generalizations about this whole category. So, yeah, with that warning out of the way, what do you actually think we should call this broad cluster or tendency within within effective altruism? Yeah, we just went recently went through sort of a painful long process of trying to come up with a name for it because sort of accidentally we had taken to calling it near-termism, just by contrast to long-termism. Originally, it had been short-termism, and that was even more of a slur. And so we got from short to near and felt like that was a very marginal improvement, but we thought we could do better. And so we spent a long time going through the process of trying to brainstorm names and come up with a sense of, like, what are we really trying to do? What do we think about the affirmative case for this, not just what is it defined against? 
And we did a bunch of surveys of folks inside and outside of OpenFill and came away thinking that sort of global health and well-being was the best option. You know, we also thought about this phrase, evident impact, which I noticed that you used in a, in a tweet about this show. And I think we came up with for our survey, and I think it, it was sort of like the third most popular. And I think there is something sort of in the tendency that that gets right, which is around the idea of like feedback loops and evidence and sort of improving over time versus just the sort of broad utilitarian sort of feeling of global health and well-being. But I, I like that global health and well-being ends up being actually like about what we are about, which is maximizing global health and well-being rather than like sort of maximizing feedback loops or maximizing concreteness, which is like a nice positive thing, but not the not the thing I see as actually core to the world or core to the project. Yeah, I guess I think part of the reason why it's hard to give a name to this is because maybe there's like kind of three separate factors that are going into people's decision making that happen to kind of agree on on some potential decisions that people should make, but they uh, kind of come in independently. So I suppose near-termism wouldn't be such an unreasonable name for, say, the moral philosophy position that it's better to benefit people sooner. And so if you can help someone today versus someone in 100 years time, it's just better because it happens sooner rather than later. Or potentially, I suppose it could be a not unreasonable name if you think it's more important to benefit people who are alive now rather than future generations. But of course, there's, there's lots of other reasons why people work on things like give well and, and reducing poverty and so on. Yeah, and I, it seems to me that nobody, I, I don't know, I, I think the, the philosophical position that it's better to help people sooner rather than later does not seem to have very many defenders. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to sign up for that position. I, though I, I think probably like there's some lay appeal to it. I think that that's part of the concern with your terms is that it, it seems to be more about maybe like population ethics or your view on like temporal discounting, which is very much not how we think about it. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting. It seems like in moral philosophy, the idea that sooner rather than later is better is not a very occupied <laughs> position. Not, not many people will defend that. Although some people do defend the idea that people who are alive now should be given extra weight. I think I've heard reports that people who've gone out and spoken to people who have no exposure to effective altruist thinking or really moral philosophy often do have this intuition that sooner is better or that maybe it just doesn't matter what impact we have on future generations. But that seems to be an idea that the more they inspect it, the less they tend to hold it because they find that it's actually in tension with other commitments that they have. I think that's right. I feel like there's two other clusters that are sort of in this in this bucket. So, you know, economists actually seem on average much more comfortable with like pretty high rates of pure time preference because, you know, people behave myopically. And so I, th- I think sometimes there's a sense of like, well, we should just read off people's true values from their everyday decisions. And I think philosophers and me are a little bit more skeptical of that. And then I think there's a second point, which is I actually think that there's a weird disconnect between sort of the like clean philosophical population ethics debates over like you know, the total view versus that, like a person affecting view and sort of what you might want to call like a colloquial population ethics, which would say like, for instance, the person affecting view seems to have like totally crazy to me implications that you don't want to put a lot of weight on. But I think a lot of people think it's important and good to have like a higher average level of well-being in the future, even if they're not particularly into either shrinking or growing the total population. And that intuition, it doesn't seem to cash out into clean philosophical positions but I actually place some personal weight on. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's kind of the, the moral philosophy angle. But I think actually maybe the, the dominant grouping is people who think that it's important to be able to really get to grips with what problem you're trying to solve and understand the nature of the problem, how it might be solved, and then measure to some degree whether you're actually solving the problem with the projects that you're, that you're funding or involved with. And that's, that's maybe the, the motivation that evident impact captures really well. It's like, well, we want to be able to actually see something that's happening in the world that, that we can tell that it's working. And it's, and it's understandable that people have that idea, because if you can't tell whether what you're doing is working, there's a pretty high risk that you choose the wrong thing at the start, and then you just keep doing it because uh, you have no idea. Yeah, I think that sense of feedback loops is an important sort of piece of the recipe here. But I also feel like, again, like you wouldn't want to go all in on sort of maximizing feedback loops, right? Like it feels like it's an obviously sort of like 
myopic goals. Like it's lacking some sort of terminal traction, I think. And so I think that the, the, the bigger thing in my mind is more like it's tied to a sense of not wanting to go all in on everything. And so maybe being very happy making sort of expected value bets in the same way that long-termists are very happy making expected value bets. But somehow like wanting to sort of pull back from that bet a little bit sooner than I think that the typical long-termist might. And so maybe a different way to put it would be like, I think a lot of it is a matter of degree rather than kind. And another way I'd sort of try to get at this is to say it's like a lot more of the disagreement seems to be about like epistemics and how to reason under uncertainty as opposed to values or even things like, you know, how important is a feedback loop in order to ensure success probabilistically is something that I think in principle, a long-termist could totally have a view on. And I don't think that our disagreements really come down to what parameter would you have for that. Yeah, I think you're kind of gesturing towards the third intellectual tendency that I that I think drives global health and well-being, which is, I guess, I don't have a great name for this, but I've kind of categorized it as epistemic modesty in, in my notes here. And maybe so some of the aspects of that are like wanting to follow common sense more than do things that other people think are really strange, wanting to learn from other people around you and generally have something that's kind of consistent with what broader society thinks is valuable. And also just spend less time thinking about philosophy and more time thinking about like, how do we make concrete changes in the real world? So more more economics and social science and politics, perhaps, and, and a bit less moral philosophy and epistemics and decision theory and that sort of thing. Yeah. Is there a way of wrapping up what this stream of argument is? Yeah, so I totally think this is the crux or this is this is the main thing going on in my mind. And I think I would call it cluster thinking. My colleague Holden in I think 2014 or so wrote a blog post on sort of sequence versus cluster thinking. And it's it's about a style of reasoning about sort of cost effectiveness and expected value. And the idea of cluster thinking is not that you don't care about maximizing expected value, you might still totally care about that. But it's sort of how do you seek the truth? And is is the path there a sort of like series of linear arguments and a series of linear multiplying of things together or a bunch of different sort of like outside views and heuristics and judgments and weights on different factors that you still might try to aggregate up into some form of expected value thinking and you could still want to maximize expected value but there's a there's a question of sort of when push comes to shove how much are you writing down and multiplying through a bunch of assumptions versus saying hey maybe i don't understand all of this maybe i'm confused i want to pull back and put more weight on heuristics and priors and, you know, outside view is going to be a fuzzy term that I'm not going to be able to defend, but things like that relative to a very formal, explicit model of the world. Yeah. So I guess from memory, uh, I guess, so Holden wrote this post about cluster thinking versus sequence thinking. And I suppose to give a brief explanation of cluster thinking, it's kind of not ever giving tons of weight to a single argument, no matter how kind of powerful it would seem if it was right. So preferring to have many somewhat compelling arguments than just one really compelling calculation, that seems good. And I suppose, yeah, that would lead to this kind of epistemic modesty idea or caring about priors and caring about the outside view rather than just philosophical arguments that, that you can run through and, and claim you've proven. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, it's, all, it's maybe it's motivated by epistemic modesty more than it sort of causes epistemic modesty or something. But so I think that part of you, you said at the top, like this is going to be kind of confusing and hard to grapple with. And I think actually part of the a little bit of the global health and well-being perspective or, or like sort of worldview relative to the long term worldview is like being a little bit more comfortable with sort of like pointing towards a cluster or heuristic and saying like, yeah, I'm not totally sure I can give you a tight, concise philosophical defense of that, but I'm pretty committed to it relative to the practice of tight, concise philosophical defenses of everything. In terms of what I think is the main motivation for like, why do people work on global health and well-being? I still think the main motivation is the object level case of like, 
you can do a lot to prevent people suffering and you can do so in really cost-effective ways. And you can, you, you know, we treat animals really terribly and you can just actually make a lot of progress against that goal. And so the back and forth on like epistemic modesty and cluster thinking, I think that might explain why sort of people might not want to go all in on long-termism or like, you know, care about these separate from long-termist kinds of philosophical problems. But like, why are people into global health and well-being? I think that the like dominant explanatory factor is like, they see problems in the world that they can make progress against and are compelled to do so. And that is the first order answer I want to give there as opposed to, well, you know, they have these complicated philosophical views about how you think about long-termism, which like, yeah, sure, some people have. But I think the, the first order answer is like, people care a lot and are trying to make the world a better place around them. And like, they see these as good ways to do so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, yeah, there's a challenge where we're maybe constantly defining this set of ideas in contrast with the other options that people who've thought about this a lot are interested in. But of course, for most people, it's just like the object level argument that I can benefit people a ton. It seems like there's strong evidence that that I can do that and that would be valuable. So that's what I'm going to do. Okay, so I think we've kind of captured the main streams of thought that feed into people wanting to work on global health and well-being. But let's try to be more concrete and maybe a bit less philosophical in keeping with with global health and well-being mentality. Yeah, quickly, what are the global health and well-being cause areas that, that Open Phil focuses on? Yeah, so there's a few ones that we've been working on for a, a few years and then some new ones that we're getting started in now. So the biggest one that we funded by far is the Give Well Top Charities. That's been something like half of the total global health and well-being giving to date. And they do things like give out insecticide-treated malaria nets to prevent the spread of malaria. They will do sometimes direct cash transfers, other kinds of global public health interventions where there's a lot of evidence about what works and what's cost-effective. From animal welfare, you've had my colleague Lewis on to talk about that extensively, so I won't go too far into it. Scientific research, particularly in global health, I think there's just a lot of areas where there's not a sort of commercial incentive to do a lot, but public-spirited R&D can go really far to help solve some of the diseases of poverty. We've also done a bunch of work on U.S. policy clauses, including criminal justice reform, some work around like land use and housing and macroeconomic stabilization. We're not currently planning to grow that work as much because we think we probably can find some better opportunities in the future. And so that gets to the the new causes bucket. And so two that we just posted job postings for are South Asian air quality and global aid advocacy. South Asian air quality is around air pollution, especially in India, where it's a huge problem for health. And global aid advocacy is about the idea of can we fund advocacy to increase or improve the quality of foreign aid? And we think that that kind of leverage might make it more cost effective than some kinds of direct services. The last area where we're sort of focused and growing right now is around that cause prioritization team that does the research to pick those new causes. Nice. And yet what are a couple of, say, archetypal grants from the Global Health and Wellbeing program? Yeah, so I think the most sort of stereotypical in some sense would be, you know, some of the Give All Top charities. So take the Against Malaria Foundation that distributes bed nets in African countries primarily where malaria is a big problem. And those bed nets are treated with an insecticide that kills mosquitoes. And, you know, there's a bunch of randomized control trials over decades that show that these work. AMF has actually contributed to some of those more recent RCTs on new generations of bed nets that help with insecticide resistance. And we continue to think that the quality of evidence and the cost effectiveness of those opportunities is actually just like really quite hard to beat, even if you're, you become willing to take sort of more risks and look at less evidence-backed intervention. And so that, that I expect to continue to be a big part of our portfolio going forward. In farm animal welfare, you know, my colleague Lewis has come on. I think a huge outlier opportunity has been corporate campaigns, especially around eliminating battery cages for egg-laying hens. There have been a lot of successes in the U.S., and I think in some ways a lot of the credit for those predates us. But taking some of those campaigns internationally, like with the Humane League, for instance, has been a major area of focus for us, and I think is a place where we've had been able to have some impact. And then another big sort of bucket of grants is in scientific research, where a lot of our work's focused on sort of neglected diseases of the poor, where there's not necessarily a big market. 
you know, a good example is our work on malaria, where I think we gave $17.5 million a few years ago to a consortium called Target Malaria that's trying to develop a gene drive for mosquito. So a particular species of mosquito contributes to most of the malaria burden in sub-Saharan Africa. And gene drive is a new biotechnology that could allow you to potentially crash the population of that one species of mosquito in order to prevent the spread of malaria going forward. And I think that's like a good example of like a higher risk, potentially higher return activity that isn't necessarily, it's certainly not something that like, you know, pharma is going to invest in. So I think among people who are drawn to global health and well-being work, maybe one of the key splits is between people who are maybe more excited about the hits-based giving high-risk stuff that comes with scientific R&D or I suppose like policy advocacy and so on, where causal attribution is a bit harder and it's far harder to estimate ahead of time, like what are the odds of this grant really paying off? Because by its nature, policy advocacy and scientific R&D are just super unpredictable. They require difficult judgment calls. Do we have any terminology perhaps for distinguishing, I suppose, the people who are like most focused on the evidence-based stuff where they want to say to be distributing bed nets where you can really demonstrate that it works, whereas people who are maybe, they want to work on problems that you can understand and grapple with and see in broad terms whether they're being solved, but they're happy to use kind of a hits-based approach to, to tackling them? I don't think we have a super crisp description of that. I mean, we definitely think about sort of the second bucket that you were just describing as the hits-based approach, but sort of the global health and well-being team at OpenPhil is very happy with both of those approaches. And I sort of think about it, you know, one sort of parallel I would draw is sort of like venture capitalists versus value investors. And I think sometimes like that, you might have like people who are sort of dispositionally closer to one or the other, where they're like, they're all about base rates. And they're really about like finding sort of like you know, the the beaten down, neglected old company that's really going to like slightly beat the market over the future versus the sexy new Facebook that's going to blow things away in the future. And we're really excited to make both of those bets. I think program officers and areas sometimes have a disposition or an approach that's more oriented for like one versus the other. But I actually think you can you can sort of have a like analytical, you know, base rates sort of value investor approach, even in like relatively like high risk areas like policy advocacy or like scientific research. And so I think a lot of it is like it's a disposition plus also a leverage or risk assessment of an area. And there's not, I think, one sort of clean, tight distinction that I want to draw between them. Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's maybe for the purposes of this conversation, we'll talk about that stuff as hits-based giving. And I think it's slightly important to bracket that off because a lot of the things that you might say about distributing bed nets maybe don't apply to the scientific R&D hits-based stuff and vice versa. That's kind of an important division within this area. Yeah, I guess one, one interesting and potentially controversial view that I hold is that neither of those dominate each other. And so I think we, we might get to this later in the conversation, but I, I actually think that if you just try to be as rigorous as you can about where will the actual like expected value calculations take you within sort of that broad like scientific research versus policy advocacy versus the give type charities, my actual take is I don't think one's going to come out purely ahead. And I think you're going to actually want to end up pursuing a mix of opportunities, but we can, we can get into more of the reasoning for that later. Yeah, that, that is a really interesting conclusion that kind of on average, they can both be somewhat similarly effective, which means that you would then probably split your resources between them, depending on what looks best. I feel like maybe that distinction looms large to me because I remember five or 10 years ago, people would debate this, this distinction a lot. Like, should we go into science R&D or should we do the stuff that's really most rigorous and most proven to work? These days, maybe I don't remember hearing that so much anymore. It seems like more people involved in effective actress thought kind of take this agnostic approach where they're like, yeah, maybe policy could be better. Maybe it isn't. We're just going to have to take it on a bit of a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And I think, again, if you had more of a dominance argument where it's like, look, the returns to policy are just always going to outweigh the returns to evidence-based aid, then I think you would end up with with more sort of back and forth and debate between them. But when you see sort of the arguments for cost actually ending up in the same ballpark, the same universe, it's just like, 
cool, we can all get along. Like people are people are going to sort into buckets that appeal to them or you know styles that work for them or interventions that they're more personally excited about. And I think that's totally healthy. And then when someone like actually like the expected value type argument seems to lead you to think one of these is going to just like totally destroy the other, that's where you I think you get a little bit more like friction and tension and debate sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think my intuition and I suppose some of the arguments I've heard suggest that in theory you would expect policy and science funding to be more effective on average, although super volatile. Like we call it hits based giving because most of the time it doesn't work, but then every so often it, it really hits it out of, out of the park. But yeah, maybe, maybe we can return to that later because you wrote this really interesting blog post about this topic a couple of years ago that we can cover. I guess we're going to spend some of the rest of this conversation kind of contrasting the arguments for working on global health and well-being versus long-termism. A slight challenge that I've had putting together the, the questions here is that sometimes these things really overlap or it could be hard to come up with clean things that might only be justified on one grounds. Because of course, people who are focused on improving the long-term future also care about health and well-being of people. <laughs> That's kind of the whole motivation. They're just thinking about when might it cash out in that and uh, thinking about doing it further in the future rather than uh, directly in the present. But also, even for so many things that long-termists are spending money on, like pandemic control or preventing wars and all these other things, you could possibly make a case that those things might be the best way of improving health and well-being in the, in the present. It could get harder for, for some stuff that won't pay off for a very long time or is perhaps the, the most speculative. But some of the projects that long-termists do these days are not that wacky anymore. <laughs> so some of them have, have come to approach common sense a bit. And so maybe there's this kind of middle ground in, in between the most philosophical, perhaps, and the, and the most out there long-termist stuff, and then perhaps the, the more sensible global health and well-being work. Before before we dive in there, I know your audience probably is pretty familiar with long-termism, but is it worth just giving a definition so that sure. people have something to react to? Like, you should actually do it probably more than me. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I guess in a nutshell, long-termism is the idea that when we're evaluating ways that we can potentially have the, have the largest impact on the world, we should mostly think about what impact those actions are going to have quite far in the future. So potentially hundreds or thousands of, of, of years in the future. And the idea is there's so much potential benefit in future generations rather than just the present generation that if you think about and try to try to estimate what impact it's going to have on all of that long-term future, then that kind of will end up dominating the most important moral consequences. And that should then end up usually guiding or determining your, your decision. Is that about right? That sounds good to me. I was just going to say that I'm very, like sort of my own perspective on this, which is more personal than professional, is that I'm very sympathetic to the idea that ethical value is distributed that way. And then, you know, sort of vastly loaded out into the far future. And then I think the, the sort of follow-up claim that I'm a, a lot more skeptical or uncertain of is, and that should guide our reasoning and actions. Um, because it just strikes me as totally plausible that our ability to, like, reason about and concretely influence those things is, is quite limited. And so that's not to say I, I'm actually like extraordinarily glad that OpenPhil is, I think, by far the largest funder of sort of like long-termist initiatives in the philanthropic world. I think that's really important work. I'm really glad we do a bunch of it. But I, I think I would be like pretty personally reticent to sort of go 100% all in on that because I, I feel like there's just a really high chance that somehow like we're confused or going to mislead ourselves if we try to try to tell a story where we, we can really predict the future super well. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed this kind of seeming increasing overlap where there's like plenty of stuff that it's a little bit hard to say, is this in the long term as a bucket or is this in the global health and, and well-being bucket? Maybe it's in both. Yeah, I do think that there are a bunch of things that you could potentially justify in either grounds. But I sort of want to push back on this because I think that there can be an instinct to want to like sort of present long termism as like in practice a little less exotic than I kind of think it actually is. And so I'm kind of curious, like when you think about it, like what do you think about like what are the stakes of long termism or like what, you know, where do I, I, Rob, think about like the impact of my career? Like what portion of your sort of expected value of, you know, long termist impact in the future is running through like specifically artificial intelligence risk? Me personally, 
I suppose a large fraction of it. I'm not quite exactly sure what the what the question is, but I suppose if humanity never creates machines that are that are smarter than humans, then it seems like the stakes of the future are just potentially way, way smaller because it would probably mean that we could never really leave the solar system and therefore like most of the energy and matter in the universe is unavailable to us. I think that's right. I also just I think about Toby's book, you know, like when when you look at the chart in Toby's book of sort of like what is his assessment of the various contributors to risk. I think AI and then secondarily sort of risks from biotechnology are sort of the dominant factors. And then everything else, I my recollection is like there's quite a steep drop off. And so I sort of feel like it comes to like sort of a, a debate about like a, a thick versus thin concept of like effective altruism or long-termism. It's like the abstract statement of long-termism as, you know, caring a lot about the far future that should guide our actions. I think you're totally right. That could justify a lot of different kinds of work and a lot of different people could sort of sign on to that abstract statement. But just like this sort of actually existing EA community is like quite loaded on long-termism and the give all top charities, in spite of the fact that, you know, we should try to do more good rather than less might be kind of an anodyne statement that a lot of people would would be pretty ready to sign on to. I sort of think that long-termism, I, I get nervous when it feels like people aren't, aren't sort of like, totally owning the degree to which it loads on like very specific views about like, particularly, I think, AI and bio risk. Yeah, I mean, so in my own mind, I think like AI is is pretty dominant. And we do talk about it a great deal. One reason that we don't just talk about it all the time is that there's lots of other people out there who want to do other things. And not everyone is going to be suited to working on artificial intelligence specifically. So while 80,000 hours should put some effort into that should also talk about a wider range of things because it allows us to, to, to have more impact. But I guess I want to push back a little bit on thinking that it's just all in AI, because as you're saying, so there's biotechnology. But then I also think there's the risk of war or the risk of political collapse or a kind of permanent negative political state or just of humanity adopting bad values that are really persistent. I would be really interested in your sense of like what portion of the like actually existing effective altruism community is primarily working on those things. I think it's a very small portion. Oh, that's interesting. I think among people who 80,000 Hours talks to, many people are interested in working on that. And I guess part of that comes from they don't feel like they have a good personal fit for working on artificial intelligence or, or bio. But also just many people think these are potentially really important issues that they're risk factors or things that could ultimately have a big bearing on where humanity ends up going in the, in the long term future, even if maybe that ends up being mediated in some way by what happens with artificial intelligence in the in the long term. So I think we're not all in on working just on machine learning and, and related issues. It's like, no, I think it's great that 80,000 hours actually does have episodes on these other issues. I think I perceive 80,000 hours as engaging in the project of like trying to broaden long termism a little bit. And I'm happy with that project or at least like interested and open to it. But my perception, and maybe it's just where I sit in San Francisco, like the open fill long-termist team, in fact, works on AI, bio-risk, and growing the EA community. And I perceive that as being like the dominant three focuses of effective altruists who identify as long-termist. And so the idea that like, oh yeah, people are doing a lot of work on climate change and preventing war. To me, I'm like, I don't know the people you're talking about. Um, <laughs> which is not to say that they don't exist, but you know, I don't feel like that is a a dominant driver of like my perception of long-termists as they as they exist in sort of my world. Yeah, that that makes sense. I think you might be getting a bit influenced by the location in San Francisco and that kind of the connections that OpenPhil has to the to the AI scene. Like I, I don't want to 
soft pedal this and say that AI isn't. I think it probably is the dominant stream or the or the, like the the number one concern if you if you had to list them within long termism. But I think there are plenty of people who are thinking about like governance and institutional decision making and like international relations and these other things that perhaps are more like positive or like negative risk factors for for how the future goes. Like even if like the era say when humanity creates AI that is capable of doing things that that humanity can't do, that might end up being kind of the decisive era. But the circumstances in which that happens could end up affecting what the what the outcome is. And and of course there's other people involved in long-termism who don't really buy the the AI story. They think it's going to happen much further in the future, or they don't think it's going to, going to be such an interesting time. Yeah, totally. And again, I, I could just be totally wrong. I think the, the 80,000 hours perch of career advising might give you a much better cross-section of people who are motivated by the stuff than I have perception into. I guess from where I sit, it seems like there's a philosophical interest in defending the principles. And so people are interested in cashing out things like, you know, what would patient long-termism look like, or some of these other sort of ideas that are outside of the AI space. But I guess my view is just very loaded on like OpenPhil's own long-termist work, which, yeah, is very focused on AI and bio-risk. I mean, I think bio-risk is kind of a good example where, you know, the the bio team ended up doing some work on COVID, but it really is not their dominant priority to prevent things like COVID. Like, they're really focused on how can you prevent pandemics that are 10 or 100 times worse than COVID. And so things that might have helped with COVID but would not help with a 10 or 100 times worse pandemic are actually not their top priority. And I think that that is a way in which, like, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's like the correct assessment given the focus on the long-term future of humanity, which I believe in. So I actually think we are making the like correct all things considered judgment call there. But I'm, I sometimes worry that we sort of like soft pedal the degree to which that's a controversial take when we say like, oh yeah, long-termists, they're doing like normal things like pandemic preparedness. And like, look, pandemic preparedness is such an obviously good thing to do. And I, I would just emphasize that I'm not totally sure about this, but it wouldn't shock me if in terms of the dollars, like the science team ended up spending more on pandemic preparedness around COVID than our biosecurity team did. That could be wrong. I didn't like run a report before this, but that is, I think, a relevant indicator as to like sort of where, at least at OpenPhil, where are like long-termist motivations cashing out. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point. I think on the COVID-19 one, I've spoken to people who both think that the important pandemic prevention work that you would do in terms of the long-term future is very different from what you would do if you want to control COVID-19. And also people who think, no, it's quite continuous with that because anything that helps you control pandemics in general is going to help you control the very worst pandemics as well. So I, yeah, there's, there's kind of an, an active debate about that. I guess maybe it doesn't get, doesn't get publicized that much, or I haven't actually seen this written up publicly anywhere, but it's something that people disagree about. And I guess it's, it's understandable that that's not going to be a super simple question to answer. But I actually think there's an interesting case where like the philosophical commitment to long-termism pushes you towards one side of that debate because basically like the more true it is that anything that you do to help with COVID is going to help with like long-term bio-risk, the more long-term bio-risk actually starts to look quite crowded and a lot less neglected. And so in that world, if you are motivated by like long-termist bio-risk versus preventing COVID-like pandemics, you're really going to want to lever up on like whatever are the things that are going to matter for long-term risks, but not COVID. So it's like you could totally rationally think, most of the work to prevent COVID, in fact, does simultaneously reduce long-term risks. But given that everyone else is now excited about preventing COVID, the rational response is for us to go focus on the things that our COVID-like pandemics are not going to be addressed by because the world's already getting its act together. And I think that might be, again, a totally correct logical inference, but I think it points to the ways in which like, the philosophical implications of long-termism are a little bit more like radical than you might sort of think upon just hearing the ideas. 
Yeah, that that does seem like it could be a reasonable interpretation. Or if you were previously focused on buyer risk because of the long-term impact, and you thought that you didn't have to do anything unusual to deal with the worst case scenarios, and now a whole lot of people are going to be diving into that, then maybe you think, well, we're going to be doing all of this sequencing and all this mRNA vaccine work, and it's probably going to work. So maybe the risk of extinction is now is now far lower than, than, it, than it used to be. I could imagine someone someone believing that. All right, maybe let's launch a little bit more, more formally into a discussion of the kind of cut and thrust on the arguments in favor of working on long-termism versus global health and well-being. I guess this is maybe one of the most well-worn debates within effective altruism. And we've outlined the case for long-termism many times on the show. So I want to spend some time letting you kind of elaborate on the arguments in favor of people who are listening, perhaps, like going into careers that benefit global, global health and well-being rather than things that are doing more unusual long-termist work. Yeah, what's perhaps the key argument in your mind for working on global health and well-being instead of working on long-termist stuff? Okay, I think arguments for global health and well-being are first and foremost about the actual opportunities for what you can do. So, you know, I think you can just actually go out and save a ton of lives. You can change destructive, harmful public policies so that people can just flourish more. You can do so in a way that allows you to get feedback along the way so that you can improve and don't just have one shot to get it right. And at the end, you can plausibly look back and say, look, the world went differently than it would have counterfactually if I didn't do this. I think that is like pretty awesome and pretty compelling. But honestly, if somebody were coming to me and saying like, I buy the long-termist gospel, I'm all, I'm all on board, I would super be uninterested in trying to talk that person out of it. I think that is great. I think there's not enough long-termists in the world. I think the idea that, I mean, I, I could go on, on a rant about this, but I, I really think that the idea that long-termism is, is new and small is totally crazy and like it should be huge and it should be a really popular idea. And the world has is in sort of a crazy place that people don't understand and appreciate our position in the world and the universe and sort of how big the future could be. And so I get a lot of value from seeing sort of more concrete impacts on my work and trying to feel like I can work on problems where I can make progress, but I'm not at all interested in talking people out of like spending their career on long-termism. Yeah. That's, I guess, good to know, but it'd be helpful to uh, to have you maybe lay out not so much a devil's advocate case, but maybe like steel man the, the case in favor of working on, on global health and well-being. If, if there was someone who came to you who was kind of on the on the fence between doing something that was more unusually long-termist and something that was, say, you know, within your own umbrella of the, of the work at, at Openfell, and they said, what's the strongest case that you can offer for doing the latter rather than the former? What kind of arguments would you make? Yeah, so I think... I would make two cases. I think like the one, one big one, again, I, I, I don't think these are like sort of like correct intellectual, I'm making air quotes, you can't see them, uh, correct intellectual <laughs> arguments against long-termism. But I think that they are things that would make it correct for a person to not necessarily choose to work on a long-termist career. And I think a really central one in my mind is, I think we just don't have good answers on long-termism. And like may, maybe that's an argument that we should have. Like the long-termist team at OpenPhil is significantly underspending its budget because they don't know where to put the money. And when I think about what are the recommended interventions or like, you know, practices for long-termists, I feel like they either become sort of quickly pretty anodyne or it's like quite hard to make the case that they are robustly good. And so I think if somebody is really happy to take those kinds of risks, really loves the philosophy, really excited about sort of being on the cutting edge, long-termism could be a great career path for them. But if you're more like, I want to do something good with my career and I'm not excited about something that might look like overthinking it. I think it's pretty likely that long-termism is not going to be like the right fit or path for you. Yeah. Maybe you don't want to call out specific examples, but uh, can you gesture towards cases where you think maybe things are either a little bit too anodyne or it's hard to make a case that something is really robustly positive? 
Yeah. So I think this this actually gets to a, a pretty big debate, and I think it's worth having. So on the anodyne side, you know, you were alluding earlier to the fact that like you're you're now counseling a lot of people who are interested in international relations and you know, trying to make sure that there's democracy and I actually put that word in your mouth. You didn't use it, but like, <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes this manifests sure. as folks who are interested in sort of improving societal judgment. And again, I made air quotes. I'm sort of skeptical that that's a thing. Like I would be really interested in seeing a concrete measure and a sense of like, what, what is that? And how does it relate to the outcomes that we care about? But honestly, when I think about like trying to move a sort of like amorphous, vague, hard to quantify measure like societal judgment versus just making people healthier and wealthier, which is what I think of as like, in some sense, like the core project of the global health and well-being team. I'm like, wow, I'm so much more excited about making people healthier and wealthier because like we know how to do that. That's a real thing. I think that there's a lot to be said for the historical association between those things and other good qualitative outcomes. And so the idea that because something is sort of like branded or inspired by long-termism and it's sort of like presented in those rhetorical terms, I think it, it leads people to be a little bit too credulous sometimes about the long-termist impact sort of being obviously better than like just working on sort of conventional global health and well-being causes where we actually know a lot about what you can do and how you can improve the world. Now, obviously that whole argument only works best if you generally think that like good things are correlated. And the more that you think actually economic growth is terrible because it's going to accelerate the arrival of the singularity and, and, and humanity, the, the more my advice to do generically good things is not going to appeal to you. But I'm also like, wow, you've gotten to a pretty weird place and you should really question how confident you are in those views. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. So putting my you know very, very long termist hat on, I guess the, the question that I'd ask there is in terms of how you're trying to like shift society in one way or the other in order to try to make the long term future go better. Is it more valuable to have people be be richer and and healthier, or is it better to at least in theory have people be more educated or more informed about the world as a whole, or better able to make collective decisions so that they don't don't do disastrous things? I guess one thing might be to say, well, the, the latter is just really hard to do, so you're not going to have much impact there. But it sounded like you're also saying, is there really ways of changing that meaningfully uh, that particularly bear on how humanity goes in the in in, in the long term future, or is it all just kind of washed out? It's not that I think it's necessarily washed out. It's that I think, A, I'm like very interested in better understanding the actual concrete measure that people are trying to increase and how correlated they think it is with the outcome. So like you alluded to education. I think education is a good example. Like you can measure education, you can improve education, like you can use standardized test scores. Like there's a lot of things that you can do to like make that number go up and to the right. And then I'm like, A, literally I think health investments might be the best way to do that. Like I don't think that's at all out of the question. And B, I'm pretty skeptical that that, is necessarily going to do better for making the long-term future go well than anything else. It's just like, it's a very broad cluster. Another another example that like really sticks with me for this, and it's just a parallel, so it's not going to move you that much, but I did debate in high school and there's a really common argumentative style that w- would sort of link everything's impact back to American hegemony and say, American hegemony is so important for the world. And if American hegemony decays, then the world's going to end in nuclear war. And so it's actually like a very like sort of proto long-termist argument. And my reaction was always just like American hegemony is like not a scale that you can easily like quantify and say like, did this move it up or down? And where it's like, oh, if it goes below a critical threshold, suddenly the world's going to have nuclear war. And sort of similarly like for education, I'm just like the putative connection with the long-term impact, I feel like is so weak as to be meaningless. And the impact that you're trying to have there, I'm just not 
sure why it goes through education rather than wealth or health. Yeah, I think by the time you're doing something as broad as just trying to improve education or wisdom across a broad swath of the population in general, then it does really seem like it's converged on. Now now you really are kind of using a very similar currency between, well, why don't we just make people richer or why don't we give them more spare time to think about things that are important to them or improve their health? I guess among serious long-termists who have tried doing things that are related to decision-making and judgment, mostly they have, basically this happened because people got excited about the Tetlock forecasting work and his efforts to try to improve decision-making within foreign policy and the CIA and organizations like that. Organizations that do seem more connected directly with ways that things go incredibly badly due to causing conflict or just having very bad policy decisions at the, at the national level. And I think that stuff, there is a more plausible claim that that is more levered on the long-term future than just making people in America richer in general. But then people have struggled to find other stuff within decision-making, improving societal prudence that also seems both tractable and likely to, to affect the long-term future in particular. Yeah. And I guess, so Luke and I, my, my colleague Luke, who does Openfield's work on this, and I, I think it's cool, interesting stuff, and I'm, I'm happy that we fund some of it. But we've gone back and forth on this a lot because I sort of am skeptical about the, again, like, I think when you use big words, it can feel like, oh, yeah, those are probably connected. But when you try to, like, actually specify, like, what's the causal chain, it starts to just feel, like, quite tenuous to me. So, like, if you look at the gains in Tetlock's work, there are gains, but I don't think that they're astronomically huge. Like, the sort of difference in Breyer score between people who are trained and are not trained is, like, meaningful, but again, like, not astronomical. And the idea that making a random CIA analyst better at predicting, like, the the death of some foreign leader because they know how to use base rates, like... I'm just like, okay, I'm having a hard time buying the story where that is preventing the AI apocalypse. Yeah, well, I'm not, not sure whether it would affect the AI stuff. I think people have a maybe broader view who, who are working on that. Even, even, I actually think a premise that I would grant and I would be like really interested in, and I haven't done the work to find, and, and by the way, I think I sounded more anti this stuff than I am. I, I think it's cool, interesting stuff. But a, a premise that I'd be super interested in seeing more on is like, is instrumental rationality in foreign affairs actually correlated with peace? And so, like, I think a a totally core premise is that if people were better at making predictions, that would prevent conflict. And I just, I don't know why I would believe that premise. That does not seem at all like an obvious premise to me. And so the idea that, like, I think according to Rilo's international relations, like, I think it could go the other direction. Anyway, so I don't know the literature on this. Like, I could be totally wrong. But it strikes me as a good example of something where, like, there's a, what I take to be a core premise for the argument that as far as I know, no one has written down or argued about and I'm like pretty worried that if somebody's walking around thinking like, okay, I'm having like really big impact in the world because I'm aimed at long-termist goals here, but a bunch of core steps have never been articulated or studied. I'm just getting pretty nervous that this is like the right decision-making framework. Yeah, I actually did put that question to Tetlock either in my first or second interview with him or possibly both. I mean, I think people find it very intuitive that instrumental rationality is likely to reduce the risk of unintended disasters like wars, just because that kind of thing is undesirable to everyone. And so you'd think people who are very incompetent and just blundering about making terrible mistakes, that's likely to lead to disastrous outcomes more often than people who are very prudent and have a good idea about what the consequences of their of their actions will be. But I agree it's not completely obvious because if you're better at predicting the effect of your actions, then you can potentially ride the line a bit more and be more aggressive and try to try to extract more from other countries because you think you can outfox them. I think that's right. I mean, I don't know. Like, if you look at you know current tensions around like Taiwan and China, like again, I, this is very much not my area, but my impression is that like the the U.S. position is strategic ambiguity, and that if China had more confidence about how the U.S. would respond, it might be more likely to invade Taiwan rather than less. 
And so again, I can be wrong about that model. Like this is very much not my discipline. This is not what I work on, but I worry that people are too willing to sort of like load up on pretty abstract priors in these kinds of settings. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've gone quite a bit down this track, but maybe we should back up. I think there's kind of been this attempted synthesis of long-termist thinking and maybe global health and well-being causes, which is sometimes called broad long-termism, which is this idea that you've been, we've kind of been talking about, which is, well, the best way to improve the long-term future isn't to do anything like about some specific technology or some specific person or institution, because it's too hard to predict what's really going to matter in the future. Instead, we should just improve society in a very broad way. And then that ends up not looking that different than what you would do if you were just working on the global health and well-being program with no particular a concern for the long-term future. But it sounds like you think that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you want to think about the long-term future, you should be doing something weird. And and there isn't this convergent middle position of broad long-termism. So I'm not actually sure that if you care about long-termism, you should be doing something weird. But I'm somewhat skeptical that caring about broad long-termism should get you to doing something that is sort of neither something that might look good according to something like global health and well-being, nor something that is going to be especially levered on sort of the long-term existential sort of considerations. And so I think things like broad international peace sort of stand out to me as an example of this, where, again, I'm, I'm just reporting a, a visceral reaction. I don't, I don't think I have any devastating arguments, but I'm, I'm both really worried about your ability to make traction on that. I think it might be quite crowded depending on sort of your interpretation. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure about neglectedness and tractability. And then when it comes to importance, yeah, the, the idea that we are better off because some people did some work on international peace and security rather than because some people did some work on economic growth or global health in the long run, to me, is just a premise that really, really demands justification. Maybe, maybe it's like a very negative version. The, the pro argument would be if you imagine a like much sort of safer, more egalitarian world or like a, a set of parameters for the settings on the world that is more in that direction, and you think about what are the best things to do, I actually think that there are like fairly plausible long-termist arguments for much more conventional stuff like just saving lives. Like I think doing so probably it grows the number of brains and like that probably increases innovation a little bit. And I think that probably should flow through a little bit. And so when I hear people advocating for things that seem to me like much worse interventions with much worse feedback loops versus things that we sort of like know and think are good, I'm a lot less confident than I think people are that the the idea that they're aimed distinctively at the long-term future is going to actually make them better at delivering on the long-term future. And so this struck me, actually, you had this previous guest who I really enjoyed your conversation with, Christian Tarzny. And I went and read his paper after, after the conversation. And he has this argument, it's like, look, long-term should go through because like, in the worst case, if you spent like all of global GDP on it, you should be able to reduce existential risk by like, you know, 1%. And that should really mean that the average cost of this actually looks really good when you count up a bunch of future generations. And I'm actually just really worried about that form of argument because I think there's a ton of sign uncertainty where like just doing GDP stuff might be better for the long-term future than doing a ton of stuff that's like, quote unquote, aimed at the long-term future. Yeah. Uh, could you elaborate on the argument that saving lives and making people richer plausibly does have significant positive flow-through effects to hundreds and thousands of years in the future? Yeah. I mean, so one one example, it's actually in um, Bostrom's original essay. Astronomical waste? Yeah, astronomical waste. Yeah. So I think there's two kinds of arguments that you see people make for this. One that I actually feel sort of mixed on, and I think it ends up being more of an argument for like what you might call sort of like medium termism or something, but is just the impact of compounding growth. And I think this argument's interesting because I think it's super importantly right historically. And so if you look at what has caused economic growth over time, 
innovation has compounded in a really important way and population compounded along with it. And so if you saved a life like 10,000 years ago, I actually think that the impact today is vastly bigger than the impact, the immediate impact on the life you saved 10,000 years ago, at least in expectation. And so that's because more people are able to come up with more innovations in our bigger markets and are able to do more trade. And like that, that, those all feed economic growth and innovation. And so like, in some sense, like all of history moves forward. And because history could be so big, that can actually be a really big impact. And there's a more EA version of this from Nick Bostrom's Astronomical Waste essay about like, you know, if we let a millisecond go by where we're not taking over the stars, the loss of that is actually really huge. So I think that the, the typical existential risk arguments against that are, are strong. And like, I actually, I buy that it makes sense to focus more on existential risk than on, you know, sort of these like broad growth cases if you're in the long-termist framework. But then I'm like, okay, if we're, if we're not going to focus on AI or bio and instead like doing these kind of like vague, big buckets of things, I'm like not so sure that we are doing better. I see. Okay, so once you're out of doing targeted long-termist work that looks like it's especially levered on on how the long-term future might go in some way that you're reasonably confident about or you have a particular reason to think it has very high expected value and now you're just doing general societal improvement, then you think it's like it's not so clear that just making people richer, making them healthier isn't having having a larger impact, I guess, either by speeding it up or just by improving society in all the ways that it's been improved over the last 200 years a little bit more. And that seems like it's been positive. That seemed like it's put us in a better position. I think that's right. Yep. And so I think the improving things does seem good. And I, I think improving things, it's interesting, like the it might have made things sort of riskier from a technology perspective for a while. But eventually, right, I think asteroid risk probably would and like other forms of like natural risks would end humanity. And so having technology, if we manage our own risks in the meantime, could enable us to, to last vastly longer than we would if we were sort of like, you know, roving bands of Neanderthals or whatever for a million years. And so I think that there is a sense in which like in a very, very long run way, like technology, I think in the next you know centuries or whatever might pose more existential risks than it's reducing. But if you look, if you think at the million year level, I think it's really clear that technology is like net reducing risks. And that's, that's an important recipe for like why you might kind of have a prior of sort of good things go together. And if I have lots of good opportunities to like just make things better, I should sort of expect that to, in a very like vague, amorphous way, make the long run go better too. Yeah. So this has been a slightly, I guess, vexed issue over the years. This question of, uh, I suppose, what, one way of putting it would be, would humanity's long-term prospects be better if global GDP growth was 3.5% rather than 3% or 3% rather than 2.5%? And I suppose at a first blush, it doesn't seem like the effect of GDP growth this year on the long-term future of humanity is that big. So we're talking probably about relatively small effects, but we can think of a bunch of them. Like one is you were saying it speeds up innovation. Uh, it speeds up education, means that there's more, more smart people out there because we're reducing poverty, more people have an opportunity to contribute and so on. Then maybe you might think secondly, that the fact that China has gotten richer really quickly over, over many decades has potentially created the risk of a new Cold War. Maybe that could end up doing humanity in and we'll be better off with a unipolar world or potentially we would want countries to develop more gradually so their culture shifts as they become more powerful. And there's a bunch of other things you could maybe maybe put on this list on, on the pro and con side. I mean, I think the effect is probably positive, although I guess we probably both agree that the effect is relatively, relatively small. Yeah, and I, I don't want to overclaim here. Like, I'm not, I'm not that confident that the effect is positive. Basically, my, my concern is I'm in favor of these like sort of concentrated specific bets on sort of specific global catastrophic risks because I think that they are big risks that are worth reducing and, and it's like sort of crazy that how much they're underinvested in by society. And then when we get to like 
trying to increase other vague aggregates for like putatively long, long-termist reasons, rather than sort of what I think take to be sort of like more like normally good vague aggregates. I'm like, I think we might be in a, a sort of uncanny valley where we're not actually getting that much and we might be losing a lot in terms of optimization power, ability to evaluate ourselves, ability to learn and improve along the way. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Let's maybe turn away from the improving broad aggregates, broad long-termist approach to thinking more about the targeted stuff, which I guess it sounds like you're more enthusiastic about. But if someone were choosing a career, say, between one of those more targeted things that works, I suppose, on pandemic prevention or preventing the worst pandemics or preventing the worst artificial intelligence outcomes, but they were, they were considering taking a job, maybe at open field working under global health and well-being, it sounds like you think both choices would be reasonable. But what could you say in favor of the global health and well-being approach? What, one thing that is, I just think I would be interested in seeing more engagement from, and it, it relates to my previous point about sort of sign uncertainty for long-termism between sort of conventionally global health and well-being causes and sort of broad long-term causes, would be like more engagement with sign uncertainty on some of the conventional long-termist work. And again, like just like previously, I didn't want to argue, I think it's clear that improving health and economic growth is going to be a uh, sign positive for long-termism or is definitely you know cost-effective from a long-term perspective or something. I, I just think it, I think it's an argument that's worth grappling with. I think if you have the opposite perspective and more think like we live in a really vulnerable world, I think maybe like an offense-biased world where it's like much easier to do great harm than to protect against it. I think that increasing attention to anthropogenic risks could just be really dangerous in that world because I think not very many people, as, as we discussed, go around sort of thinking about the vast future. And if it's like, one in every thousand people who go around thinking about the vast future decide like, wow, I, I would really hate there to be a vast future. I would like to end it. But if it's just a thousand times easier to end it than to stop it from being ended, that could be a really, really dangerous recipe where like, again, like everybody's well-intentioned. We're raising attention to these risks that we should reduce. But like the, the increasing salience of it could have been net negative. And I feel like there's a couple of examples from history that this reminds me of like, Michael Nielsen is a quantum physicist who is sort of popular on Twitter and is a friend of mine who I think is like sort of one of the smartest people I know. And he's tweeted about how he thinks like one of the biggest impacts of like EA concerns with AI X risk was to like cause the creation of DeepMinds and OpenAI and to like accelerate overall AI progress. And I'm not saying that he's necessarily right. And I'm not saying that that is clearly bad from an existential risk perspective. I'm just saying that strikes me as a, a way in which like well-meaning increasing of salience and awareness of risks could have turned out to be harmful in a way that has not been, I haven't seen that sort of get a lot of grappling or attention from the EA community. I think like you could tell obvious parallels around like talking a lot about bio-risk could, could turn out to be like a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that on both the most targeted long-termist work and on the, the broader work, I guess people talk about this term cluelessness, that because the world is so unpredictable, it's so hard to tell the long-term effects of your actions. If you're focused on the very long-term future, then it's just plausible that it's it's almost impossible to find something that is robustly positive. As you say, on almost anything uh, that you can actually try to do, you, some people would argue that you could tell a similarly plausible story about how it's going to be harmful as how it's going to be helpful. And I guess you could make similar arguments. Yeah, we were talking about how you can do the same thing with the broader work, like improving judgment. Maybe that's bad because that will just leave people to be, to be more aggressive and more likely to go to war. I suppose if you put that hat on where you think it's just impossible to predict the effect of your actions hundreds or thousands of years in the future, where, where do you think that leads? Yeah, I think it's super interesting and super complicated. And it's actually been something I've been grappling with recently because 
I'm not, I'm not much of a moral realist, but in practice, I sort of think about myself as, as mostly a utilitarian. And I actually, for me, you know, the, the two uncertainties about utilitarianism that have always been sort of most compelling to me, well, what, what, I, what I've had for a long time is I'm just not sure what I'm trying to maximize. Like hedonism doesn't seem very compelling to me. Objective list theories don't seem very compelling to me. So like, I'm sort of like, well, there's something sort of out there that is good and I want there to be more of it and, and we should have more of it. And that seems good. And so I've always recognized that my sort of maximand is is under theorized. But the second thing that I, it's very much coming out of like the EA community that I don't think I had adequately grappled with before is this idea of cluelessness. And I don't think it just cuts against long-termism. I think it cuts against like basically everything and just leaves you very confused. But one place where I encountered it is, you know, yeah, I mentioned earlier this idea that if you lived 10,000 years ago and you, you sort of saved a neighbor's life, most of the impact that you might have had there in sort of a like counterfactual utilitarian sense, at least in expectation, might have run through like basically just like speeding up the next 10,000 years of human history such that like today, maybe hundred more people are alive because you basically sped up history by like a millionth of a year or something. And that impact is potentially much larger than like the immediate impact of like saving your neighbor's life. I mean, it seems to be in some sense. And when that happens with like sort of very boring colloquial type things, and by the way, that argument is from a blog post by Carl Schulman that maybe we should put in the show notes or something. Yeah, we'll link to that. And if you have that for like sort of the most pedestrian kinds of things of like just saving a life, the impact that you actually would sort of want to care about maybe from sort of like my utilitarian ethics is this like vastly disconnected future quantity that I think like you would have had no way to predict. I think it makes you want to just say like, wow, this is all really complicated and I should bring a lot of uncertainty and modesty to it. And I don't think that should make us abandon the project, but it does make me sort of look around and say like, everything here is just more complicated than it seems. And I want to be a little bit more sympathetic to people who are skeptical of like totalism and making like sort of big concentrated bets and are more like, maybe not even that interested in altruism where they're just like, I'm just doing my thing. And again, I think it would be better if people were more altruistic. I, I don't think that's like the right conclusion, but for really genuinely feeling the cluelessness does make me feel more like, wow, the world's really rich and complicated and I don't understand it at all. And I don't know that I can like make terribly compelling demands on people to do things that are outside of like their everyday sphere of life. Yeah, it's interesting, even with the, so you save someone's life and then that leads to 100 more people living over the, over the next uh, couple of centuries because of all of the children they have. Even there, you can't be confident that it was positive even over that time because we don't know whether people's lives are positive rather than negative. I guess, especially when they were living in pre-industrial times, it's pretty arguable that the life of a typical person in the 18th century could have been that negative. And then you think about the effect that they have on other people, the effect they have on the natural world, animals. Yeah, it is just really humbling once you start actually counting, itemizing all of these different impacts and trying to, trying to put signs on them and seeing how they keep flipping over... <laughs> over time as, as things play out. I think if I was going to give up on trying to improve the world, I think it would be concerns like this that <laughs> that would make me lose my spirit. Yeah. My colleague Ajaya Kotra came on the show a while back and she had this metaphor that I really loved and really stuck with me of like a train to crazy town. And she had just gone super deep into the potential scale of how big like human civilization or human drive civilization could be. And it turned out that it seemed to depend on these like considerations around like what portion of their future resources would like a civilization that like takes over the stars devote to like simulating our society right now. And she was just like, this is a really weird place to be. And it made her want to step back and say like, wow, how confident should I be in all of this? And she's still like a hardcore long-termist, but I feel like that's, that can help that sense of like, this is going like really weird places and I'm just not sure that I am very capable of or reasoning very well about it. 
and, and a specific analogy to like the train to crazy town, something that's like really stuck with me and made me want to just be like a lot more modest about everything and a lot less confident that I can like make good predictions about the world or even like know what is good. And I feel honestly like a little unstable about that. I'm not sure where I'm going to land. Yeah. I think I don't get off the train to crazy town because it's crazy uh, in particular, but I think the more you keep considering these deeper levels of philosophy, these deeper levels of uncertainty about the nature of the world, the more you, you just feel like I'm on extremely unstable ground about everything. Because if I kept thinking about this and I kept unveiling these new crucial considerations, then that could just flip all of the things that I think now. And then at some point you're like, well, there's probably just all of these things, all of these considerations that I haven't thought about that mean that what I'm doing now is very naive. And so like, why would I even bother to do it? And I'm like, I'm not intelligent enough to to think them through and, and get and get to the right answer. So that that could be demoralizing. And I guess it gets people maybe to want to try to cling to the hope that like, well, maybe I can find some worldview that is hopefully reasonable. And like, maybe I'm going to bank on uh, that this like more common sense approach or this like this this going down this line of reasoning to the point where I felt like I could actually understand what was going on and reach conclusions and then just stopping there. Maybe that's my best shot, even if there's a good chance that it's going to end up being wrong. Yeah, I have two reactions to that. One, like I, I sort of want to defend the the carry about the craziness or like the, the crazy town problem of maybe it's just a motivational defense. But I think once you're in the mode of like, wow, everything's chaotic, I'm just giving up. I feel like there's something bad about that. There's like some failure and being able to say like, okay, like I want to simultaneously hold in my head the idea that I have, I have not answered all the questions and like my life could totally turn out to have caused great harm to others due to like the complicated chaotic nature of the universe in spite of my like best intentions, I think is just true and something that we all need to like own and acknowledge and, and learn how to inhabit. Sorry, so suddenly this became like the Buddhism podcast, right? Um, yeah, but <laughs> this the, has gone dark. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it is true that we, we cannot in any way predict the impacts of our actions. And if you're a utilitarian, that's like a very odd, scary, complicated thought. But I think that in some sense, like basically like ignoring it and like living your life, like you are able to preserve your, your everyday, like normal moral concerns and intuitions to me seems like actually basically correct. And again, I'm not saying that this, I don't want to say that this is like privileged normative terrain where like if other people don't have the same conclusions I do, they're wrong about it. But my take is that kind of going back and saying like, yeah, I'm going to rely on my everyday moral intuition that saving lives is good. And I'm going to keep doing that, even though I, I recognize the, the the normative confusion of cluelessness, I think is actually just probably like good life advice. <laughs> um, and I think it's kind of maximizable. Like I think if everybody followed it, it would be good. But I'm not saying that it's like philosophically true. Yeah, I mean, it's very practical and, and very appealing on a, on a personal level. But of course, the, the problem is that the cluelessness bites there as well. You kind of can't escape because then, then you're doing this thing that you think is good. But then the whole point is that you have good reason to think that it will have significant effects, but then you don't really have very compelling reasons to think those effects will be positive. I think that's right. And I guess I'm, I think this came up actually in a previous podcast with you. It's like, you got to leave the house. And so <laughs> in some ways, again, I think, it, I think it's like this project of like thinking it all through should like destabilize you in some sense. And then it's just like, but actually, what are you going to do? And I, I think it would be a mistake to feel like either you're on like super high normative ground where like you have found the right answer. And like, I think the EA community probably comes across as like wildly overconfident about this stuff a lot of the time, because it's like, we've discovered these deep moral truths and it's like, wow, we have no idea. And I think we are, we are like all really like very much including me naive and ignorant about what impact we will have in the future. And I kind of think practically like finding a place that kind of works for you and then ignoring it is like basically the right advice. Yeah. All right, let's slightly change gear and change tone for a minute and maybe go back towards a more affirmative case for global health and well-being. 
What are some examples of valuable feedback loops that you've observed that have helped people to have more impact than they might have if they, if, if they weren't able to, to see what was going on? I think a really central one is just being able to see what works and then do more of it, which is kind of a funny low-hanging fruit. But I think often in other categories where like you don't even know sort of what intermediate metrics you're aiming for, you, you don't have that benefit. So for instance, you know, the amount of resources flowing into cage-free campaigns in environmental welfare has, I think, well over 10x because they were working. And it was like, oh, okay, we, we have found a strategy or tactic that works and we can scale. And I think that accounts for you know, a very material portion of the whole farm animal welfare movement's impact over the past decade. But if you were somehow unable to observe your first victories, you wouldn't have done it. And so I think that there's something about like, literally the feedback loop of like, knowing if something is making progress is a really, really important one. And also on the other side, like being able to notice if like the bets aren't paying off. So, you know, we have a program that's focused on like US criminal justice reform. And, you know, we don't do sort of calculations for every individual grant necessarily. Like we make big bets on sort of Chloe who leads that program. But if after like five years, like the U.S. prison population was like growing, you know, we don't observe the counterfactual, but like that would raise questions for us of like, given sort of our cost this bar and the level of like reduced incarceration we would need to be hitting to make this sort of pencil compared to other opportunities for us, being able to like observe the state of the world and say like, is the state of the world consistent with what it would need to be in order for these investments to be paying off is an important kind of benefit that you can get in the near-termist global health and well-being side that you can't necessarily get in the the long-termist work, I don't think. Another one is just like really boring stuff, but like you can run randomized control trials that tell you like, okay, like the new generation of insecticide-treated bed nets is, you know, 20% more effective because the level of resistance before to the old insecticide was reducing it by 20%. You, you wouldn't have necessarily known that if you couldn't do the data and improve. And so none of those are necessarily order of magnitude kinds of things. But I do think if you if you think about like the compounding benefits of all of those and the ways in which basically like the long termist project of trying something and maybe having like very little feedback for a very long time is like quite unusual relative to like normal human affairs, it wouldn't shock me if the like expected value impact of like having no feedback loops is is a lot bigger than you might sort of naively think. That's not to say that long termists have no feedback loops though. Like, you know, they'll see like, are we making any intellectual progress? Are we able to hire people? Like you know, there there are things along the way. So I don't I don't think it's like a total empty space. Yeah, yeah. Long-termist projects are, are pretty varied in how much feedback they get. I mean, I suppose people doing really concrete safety work focused on existing ML systems, trying to get them to follow instructions better and not have these failure modes. In a sense, they, they get quite aggressive feedback. <laughs> they say, like, have we, have we fixed this technical problem that, that we've got? Yeah, I think that work is awesome. Like my colleague Ajaya has has written about how like, you know, she's hoping that we can find some more folks who want to do that kind of like practical applied work with current systems and fund more of it. And like that, again, this is just a heuristic or a bias of mine, but I'm definitely a lot more excited to bet on tactics that we've been able to like use and have worked before relative to kinds of models where it's like, we have to get it right the first time or humanity is doomed. I'm like, well, I think we're pretty doomed if that if that's how it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's, this keeps turning into darkness again. But yeah, it is, it is possible. You could imagine you're like, unsure, is this a case where we have to just get everything right the first time, and we're not going to have any feedback? Or maybe this is one where we can cross the river by feeling the stones, we'll like solve the technical problems as they come up. Even if you place 50-50 chances on both of those scenarios, you might just think, well, the first is a write-off. <laughs> if that's the case, we just, there's just almost nothing that we can do. So we should just bank on the second one and, and, and cross our fingers. In which case, you are, again, working in an area where you can get at least a, a reasonable level of feedback. I guess within, within bio as well, imagine many of the grants that the bio team at OpenFill is working on, they do get feedback on like, well, were these policies implemented? Like, has this technology actually worked? Do the machines, are they being bought by anyone? So there's a whole spectrum. And I suppose the global health and well-being stuff tends to be stronger on the side of, of getting feedback. 
Yeah, and I, a lot of what I was pointing to is I think I think that's really right. And the place where I think the feedback can be worse is when it's like you don't observe whether you're sort of like progressing towards your intermediate goals. And so it's like, you know, in, in biosecurity, maybe you could say like, okay, like we advanced the field of metagenomic sequencing and we're seeing more sequencers be used. But like, was your thesis that metagenomic sequencing was going to be able to reduce risk, correct? Is like a thesis that I basically don't see how you make good progress on. And again, it depends a little bit on your type model. Like if, if your picture of the world is more like in order to be more safe, like we have to be able to like be helpful at everyday use. And this is, this goes back to the description you were trying before between like, do you need stuff that's only going to be helpful for existential risks or is it going to be used in use every day? And I actually am like pretty sympathetic to the like, if it's not used every day, it's not going to be helpful kind of perspective. And so you might be able to observe like, is the sort of metagenomic sequencing apparatus that we invested in is it being used for everyday diagnostic? Is it detecting new pathogens? And so like, I think you could you could have a sense that like, well, at least that part of the bet was on track, but we never observed the base rate of existential risk. And so the fundamental question of like, how much of it are we reducing feels like quite irresolvable to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's two stages of feedback. One is like, did the project accomplish its immediate intermediate goals, kind of the ones that you plausibly can see? And then the second step of does that help, <laughs> which is a whole lot less certain. And is I guess with existential risk in particular, the problem bites especially hard because the only time you would ever, well, I guess you can't really know <laughs> because you know, you're not going to be around to see the case, the case in which you fail, among other problems. I mean, you, when we're all dying in the pandemic, we can recognize that we, we failed to prevent it. But uh, yes, I, I <laughs> stick that in our impact evaluation as our last act. I suppose the, the the feedback loop case in its strongest form, you were saying, kind of relies on this compounding where, say, you work on two different projects and you notice that one of them is getting traction that seems to be accomplishing its intermediate goals. And so you pile more into that. And then you start improving it based on the parts of that project that seem to be working really well. And then you see that those intermediate goals do seem to be cashing out in the ultimate thing. And so you like go into that more. And then maybe you branch off something that's kind of similar, but a bit different and see if it's better. So this like over time, you get this iterated improvement that maybe really does add up to being a primary a primary concern, even if year to year, it's not it's not so central. Yeah, much better put than I'd say it. <laughs> um, do you think the considerations in favor of global health and well-being approach are different when you're trying to dispense money as grants? And I guess especially when you have billions of dollars to get rid of, as opposed to maybe when you're just planning out your own career and, and you're going you're gonna to be there watching the whole thing over, over a 40-year period? I do think it's different. In, in a lot of ways, the career case for long-termism seems better to me. And I also think it makes sense for the EA community to be pretty invested in long-termism. One way I put it would just be, when I think about like who are the major long-termist thinkers and like what are the major long-termist institutions, I feel like a huge portion of them are all sort of coming out of and motivated by the effects of altruism community. Because it's like, in a lot of ways, like I think a sort of weird, surprisingly new idea. And so effective altruism is very important to long-termism in a way that for global health and well-being scientific research for global health and global health funding itself and policy causes like there's billions of dollars going into those things they're already like existing in large communities and so i think that both gives you scaffolding for like good ways to spend money today and in really concrete helpful ways and i think that does matter when you're trying to give away a lot of money but it also makes it so that in some ways i think sort of global health and well-being needs effective altruism a little bit less, especially in terms of like sourcing people for careers, then I think long-termism sort of needs effective altruism and needs EAs. And so I think that's a pretty important argument for like as an individual. Like I think if you have a career you're excited about that would be long-termist, I think that could be a really good pro. And, you know, when it comes to money, I think there's just a lot more opportunities that are like able to absorb a lot more money in some sense on the global health and well-being side. And so I think that's an important place for open field to diversify in. Yeah, I was thinking one way in which maybe long-termism is a bit more easy to implement in, in your career 
is that you don't have kind of the same principal agent issues, perhaps, that OpenPhil has offering grants. So in as much as we're very concerned with the challenges of figuring out whether anything that you're going to do is, is actually going to be useful. OpenField might have a lot of trouble, say, figuring out what's a grant that's going to improve international relations or reduce the risk of, of a war between the US and China. But of course, if you could become someone who was deeply embedded in the State Department and was focused on exactly those issues related to China, of course, you would have decades of experience by that point where you've learned to try to hopefully understand the system and maybe be able to have some predictable positive impact there. And you can then actually just apply that knowledge and you'll be getting feedback from your from your own work and seeing what, what impact your actions have in a way that it's very hard for a grant maker. Like it's very hard for them to say, then give that knowledge back to a grant maker in order to convince them that they're having a predictably positive impact. Uh, does that resonate? I think that's right. But there's a couple sort of countervailing factors that I would throw one away on the other side in my mind. So one is that careers are just really long and the more sort of specialized your career is, I think the higher risk that you face, that basically like long-termist thinking will sort of leave you behind. And so, you know, right now, maybe people are interested in international relations, but the probability that in 20 years, people still think that's like one of the top career paths for long-termists strikes me as just given our maturity and, and where we are in, in the intellectual development and thinking through all these crucial considerations that we talked about, quite, quite low. And so if you think that career capital in something you're going to develop is like highly specific, and the only case for it is like a pretty contingent long-termist case, I think that would make me really nervous because a career is just like, it's a long thing and it's yours. <laughs> and so it feels something to me where it's like, I'm a little bit more reticent to make it like sort of one big expected value bet with my career relative to money where in my career, like I have to keep feeling enthusiastic. I have to keep going to work every day. And so it also feels to me like sort of personal taste is going to do a lot more work in career decision-making than I think you necessarily need it to do in donations, where A, it's obviously easier to diversify donations, and so you can do some of both. But B, I think people over the length of a career are pretty likely to flame out if they're not sort of like motivated reasonably intrinsically by the work that they're doing every day. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. I mean, the argument relies on you're potentially advancing your career to the point where you're a greater expert in the area than, say, open fillers when it's making grants, which means that you have to stick with it for a long time, which is why I think we pretty rarely recommend that people go into some path that they're, they're not excited to, to be in. So I, think of that, I guess I think of that as like a slightly orthogonal issue. One really important consideration that plays into OpenPhil's decisions about how to allocate its funding and also really bears importantly on how the effective altruism community ought to allocate its efforts is worldview diversification. Yeah, can you explain what that is and how that plays into this debate? Yeah, I think the central idea of worldview diversification is that the internal logic of a lot of these causes might be like really compelling and a little bit totalizing. And you might want to step back and say, okay, I'm not ready to go all in on that internal logic. And so one example would be just comparing environmental welfare to other human causes within the remit of global health and well-being. And, you know, one perspective on environmental welfare would say, okay, like we're going to get chickens out of cages. And I think, you know, I'm not a speciesist, and I think that a chicken day suffering in the cage is somehow like very similar to a human day suffering in a cage. And I should care kind of similarly about these things. And I think another perspective would say, I would trade an infinite number of chicken days for any human experience. I, I don't care at all. And if you just try to sort of put probabilities on those views and multiply them together, you end up with this really chaotic process where you're likely to either be 100% focused on chickens or 0% focused on chickens. 
And our view is that that seems misguided, that, you know, it does seem like animals can suffer. It seems like there's there's a lot at stake here morally and that there's a lot of cost-directed opportunities that we have to sort of improve the world this way. But we don't think that the correct answer is to either go 100% all in where we only work on farm animal welfare or to say, well, I'm not ready to go all in, so I'm going to go to zero and not do anything on farm animal welfare. We're able to work on multiple things and the effective altruism community is able to work on multiple things. And a lot of the idea of worldview diversification is to say, even though the internal logic of some of these causes might be so totalizing, so demanding, ask so much of you, that being able to preserve space to say like, I'm going to make some of that bet, but I'm not ready to make all of that bet can be a really important move at the portfolio level for people making their individual lives, but also for Openfield to make as a big institution. Yeah, it, it feels so intuitively clear that when you're to some degree picking these numbers out of a hat, you should never go 100% or 0% based on stuff that's basically just guesswork. I guess the challenge here seems to have been trying to make that philosophically rigorous. And it, it does seem like coming up with a truly like philosophically properly grounded justification for that has proved quite hard. But nonetheless, we've decided to go with something that's a bit more like cluster thinking, a bit more a bit more embracing common sense and refusing to, to do something that, that obviously seems mad. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think part of the perspective is to say, like, look, I just trust philosophy a little bit less. And so the fact that something might not be philosophically rigorous, I'm just not ready to accept that as a devastating argument against it. And so the intuitive appeal of saying, like, look, there's no one worldview where this is the right reaction, but it, in some sense, it like is a good way to compromise across kind of incommensurate sorts of worldviews or incommensurate sorts of goods. I think there's something that's like correct about that intuitive appeal, even though I don't think I have a devastating argument about the reasoning there. But I, I hopefully that, you know, even if you're like, you know, a long-termist is ready to be all in on long-termism, the appeal to like, how should we think about the farm animal welfare case might, might motivate you to see like, oh yeah, I get why some but not all <laughs> is a like desirable place to be able to end up, even though the internal logic of any of these positions is going to say like, it's going to be very greedy. I'm going to say like, I want all of it and I, and I round your thing to zero. And like, we, we want to do a bunch of these things that we think are really cost-effective, really high-impact ways to help the world, but we don't want to say, and everything goes to zero. Yeah. Yeah, to some extent, we don't have to go through everything to do with worldview diversification, because fortunately, we covered that in quite a bit of detail with Ajay Kotra back in the episode that came out in in, in January of, of, of this year. So people can refer back to that if they, if they want a lot more information. I guess it seems like OpenPhil has three main worldviews that it embraces. One is human health and well-being, and then there's there's animal animal welfare, and then there's long-termism. I guess an interesting question is, why not add more? Like, what's the limiting principle on this worldview diversification? Yeah, I think that's a really hard question. And I would say I'm a relative partisan of fewer is better, where, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for having a unified metric where you can compare things in, a, in one term and optimize and say, like, you know, I might not prioritize education because I think health is just consistently more valuable. And if you if you're so obsessed with world diversification or you're, you're, you're so ready to diversify it at any choice point, then I think you end up just like recapitulating the diversity of the world. And you're not able to have a perspective or an edge, really. And so where do you draw the line between too much or too little worldview diversification, I think, is a really tough problem that I don't have any good first principles answers to. And I actually think we end up in like some pretty sort of post hoc places in some interesting ways. So like one of the things that the cause prioritization research team has been thinking through recently is that how should we think about the value of economic growth? Because I think there's a community around sort of like progress studies and that thinks sort of about the value of economic growth and says like, that's actually the key thing for you know, humanity historically, it's the thing that has made the world go well, and we should be really excited about accelerating more of it in the future. 
And when we've tried to analyze like how good are the policies that you know could accelerate more economic growth, I think our current take, and my colleague Tom has been working on this and is planning to hopefully publish it later this year, is that you can actually end up very much like in the ballpark of sort of like normal global health and well-being kinds of priority areas where it's like probably there's advocacy that you could do around economic growth that looks like it could compete with the give all top charities according to these estimates, but not necessarily like beat them. So it's like it's in the mix, I think, according to like where our estimates are landing. And I think that's like a kind of attractive place. On the other hand, if you if you went to a if you had a value that came out of that process that was like astronomically higher, where it's like anything you could do for economic growth is worth a million times saving one life today. I think we could be having a worldview diversification conversation about it and say like, okay, maybe we want to give economic growth 20% of the portfolio or something like that, right? Where it's like, it's between the fundamental welfare and the long-termism amount or something. And obviously that that 20% is totally made up and, and uncertain. I don't have a rigorous philosophical defense of it, but I think that that when you end up your optimizations kind of your comparable units are getting you to an answer that seems reasonable. Then you sort of like don't need the worldview diversification. But sometimes the worldview diversification feels really necessary if sort of like one consideration is threatening to swamp the whole calculation, seemingly out of proportion to the the stakes. I guess one other point in this, and I promise I'll shut up and let you talk eventually, <laughs> um, is that we actually think we are making a pretty big contrarian bet, even on the global health and well-being side, where like. I think most people, like their central worldview is like, they care about their family, they care about their like community, they care about their nation. And so even the starting point of the Give Well Tap charities being cosmopolitan and saying, we value lives all around the world and not just in our local community, I think is actually like quite a contrarian sort of expected value flavored bet relative to the world. And so even just saying like, we have, you know, three worldviews that we like compare internally, but not externally between, I think is like very, very far in the like, reductive EV maximizing sort of calculating direction relative to philanthropy at large or just like how most people think about the world. Yeah. If you think that's contrarian, I've got some people you should meet, Alexander. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like um, that's the theme of this podcast. I'm like, I'm, I'm weirder than 99.9% yeah. of people, but not, not, not quite as weird as the, the last 0.1%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the I guess the um, what's the pettiness of, of small differences. Although it is interesting that these quite small differences lead to such different conclusions, which I guess is the whole issue that the the conclusions are so unstable based on like, are you do you go ninety nine point nine or ninety nine point nine nine? I think that's another consideration that should make you sort of want to meta say like, I actually think it's fine to sort of like follow your passion, follow like whatever feels compelling to you. I, I'm actually quite open to people like prioritizing that and, and going all in on it and not trying to sort of like hedge themselves in some big way. But I do want them to sort of like. Hold it a little lightly. And I, I feel like, yeah, it goes back to our, our conversation earlier about cluelessness. Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to worldview diversification uh, as part of uh, wrapping up on this section. But a few more small points. I guess there's some folks who decide not to focus on long-termism in part because they think humanity surviving for millions of years or ever having effects outside of the solar system is just wildly unlikely and kind of can be dismissed. Do you have any sympathy with that position? I have shockingly little sympathy for that position, <laughs> especially the like millions of years idea. Like the idea that it's wildly unlikely seems totally crazy to me. You know, lots of other mammal species survive millions of years. I think humanity now is like way, way more widespread than a typical mammalian species. And so the idea that it's just in principle impossible seems totally crazy to me. And I find this idea actually like extremely inspiring. You know, humans are a very young species. We've only had modern economic growth for a couple of hundred years so, like, what we think of as history is just so wildly short, and the future could be unbelievably massively large. And so I think there's something really beautiful about contemplating the, like, scale of what is possible and how good it could be. And so 
Yeah, like, you know, it's funny going back to our closest conversation, like, I do think we have like huge uncertainty. We don't know what we're doing. You know, we're really naive in some very deep sense, but also like we're in this crazy position in the universe. And I would be really sad if OpenFill wasn't able to simultaneously like put a lot of resources into like improving lives in sort of concrete, obvious ways and trying to make these like really high stakes bets on how to make, you know, the vast future of humanity go a lot better. Yeah. Okay, to kind of wrap up this section on arguments in favor of global health and well-being, let's talk a bit about some of the instrumental reasons why it's worth OpenPhil or the effective altruism community putting additional resources into global health and well-being beyond what they might uh, just based on kind of the expected value of the direct impact of that work. Yeah, what kind of indirect or instrumental benefits of, uh, of having that approach in addition to others kind of stand out to you? Yeah, I actually wanted to get to this earlier because, you know, when we were talking about, you know, what's the case for worldview diversification and what's the case for not just going all in on long-termism, right? I said, one part of that case is some skepticism that you really want to bet everything on like sort of one brittle expected value argument. And I think like, we just kind of want to stop and step back and say like, eh, let's, let's not go that far. And then the second case is sort of like internal to the expected value thinking, actually just thinking that something like global health and well-being is just really justified on long-term grounds, right? And one part of that case was saying, I think there's a lot more sign uncertainty on long-termism than people think. And I think in some ways, like actually just, you know, saving lives and doing sort of pedestrian good things today could be really good and could be actually better according to long-termism than things that are sort of like branded long-termism. I don't think that's true for AI risk, but again, then you have the, the concern over sign uncertainty and like maybe some of the things that we might do on AI risk could actually be like increasing it rather than decreasing it. So that's all about the long-term side. But then I think that there's like these practical benefits of the global health and well-being work that I actually think can just add a lot of value by the long-termist lights because of those practical benefits. So, you know, a lot of these arguments are in our original post on worldview diversification from several years ago. And like one of them is just optionality. Like if we think we're going to go through a lot of different causes over time as our thinking changes, and I think that's pretty plausible, global health and well-being gives us a lot of like knowledge and opportunity to build up experience and causes that might turn out to be relevant. So we know a lot more about policy advocacy in the U.S. than we did five years ago when we were getting started. And that doesn't primarily come from the work on long-termism, even though it might turn out to like really significantly benefit the work on long-termism. A second practical benefit that I think makes a big difference is around feedback loops, right? So, you know, we talked earlier about some areas of just like being able to see concretely, like what is working? I think we can learn lessons about just like what kind of grants go well versus don't. Like, I think there's sort of generalizable lessons there. And a third example is like these very concrete relationships and grantees that have been able to like move from one side to the other. So there's an organization that we fund called Weightless Zero that primarily worked on advocacy around allowing compensation for living kidney donors. And during the pandemic, the person who had started that was able to like pivot with some of our funding to start this organization one day sooner that was working on allowing human challenge trials for COVID vaccines. And if we hadn't been funding the work on Weightless Zero, I don't think he would have been in that position to start the work on human challenge trials. And so I think that's one example. Another example is like some of a grantee from our macroeconomic stabilization portfolios ended up turning out to be like really helpful for a bunch of policy work in biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. And that's something I think we wouldn't have necessarily expected a lot of in front at the beginning. And there's just even more pedestrian stuff like recruiting and fundraising eventually. We think OpenFill will be a lot more conventionally successful and attractive if it's like a 50-50 long-termist and global health and well-being organization versus if, it, if it's like the only thing we work on is AI risk. We think we would be leaving a lot of value on the table there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think all of that makes sense. The reason I put this in fairly late is that I feel a bit uncomfortable with the idea of advocating for doing this big program and spending all of this money just because it incidentally benefits this other program. There's something about that that feels uncomfortable. And I guess you want to put kind of the affirmative case for it first, rather than just say, <laughs> as a side effect, it benefits the long-termist work. I think that's right. And I do think that the affirmative case is first. Like the affirmative case is like, you get to do a lot of good, right? I think that's why people do it. I think it's why people are interested in it. And it's like all this other stuff is like sort of like the third thought. But I don't actually think it's that crazy as, as a consideration because basically like the, the long-termist view should just be a lot more comfortable with this because the long-termist view is kind of like everything is these weird bank shots to influence the distant future, right? So like anything that you might do to help somebody today, according to long-termism, is like fundamentally towards the terminal goal of like, their distant impact on the far future. And so if what you think is that most of the moral value is in the far future and we should act accordingly, you're sort of committed to all of these weird bank shots because there's like nothing else in some sense. So I think if people were cynical about it and they're like, oh, I'm going to pull the wool over people's eyes, I think that would be really unfortunate. But I think being honest that we worry that we might have gotten a little bit crazy seeming here and like we like to do concrete good things because that helps people understand that we are motivated by concrete good action. I think there's something about actually like making your appearance in line with your true deep values there where you're like, that's not deceptive. That That's just like honest and correct. And I find that like totally compelling. Yeah, I think part of my discomfort is the idea that some of these arguments can get a bit close to ones that might lack integrity. So you can imagine what if nobody at Openfill actually thought that this work was was very effective and they clearly thought that this other other umbrella was much better, but nonetheless they were doing it just because it kind of looked good or brought positive attention or got people to take them seriously. If that was the way that things were, then I think that would raise serious integrity issues for me. And I'd think, well, maybe even if that's good in some narrow sense, do we really want to be willing to engage in this, like let PR dominate what we're doing to such a degree? Because the fortunate thing is that there's lots of people who do think that this really is the most justified thing on the merits, or at least that it should absolutely be part of the thing. And then you can make the argument that everyone else should be pretty happy about that because it happens to benefit everyone and makes the pie bigger. I think that's reasonable, but I actually, I don't totally agree. So one one thing I think would be really objectionable about your story is it was like, if there was like a pure cynicism to it, right? So if it's like, if people were like, we're wasting this money, like how could we possibly spend it this way? But we're trying to buy good PR, you know? I totally agree that would be like a really undesirable, like inauthentic place to be. And like, that's not what we're into. But if you're like, I don't know, I think about my own case where it's like, I think about myself as like ethically pretty comfortable with long-termism. I get some real comfort that I think that the work that I can do at OpenFill both has these like concrete impacts of, I think, making people's lives better today and helps further the work of our long-termist team. And I guess like if in my mind it was like the only reason I do the work was because of the long-termist work, I I feel like I'd be a little bit more sympathetic to the, um, okay, that's one thought too many. But again, because long-termism has in some ways like I think a, a sort of shortage of like good things to do. The idea that actually just concretely helping people today because that will help mainstream long-termism, I don't know. I don't think that would be like a necessarily terribly objectionable mindset unless the, the view was like, oh, I'm going to dupe people. And then I'm like, yeah, okay, that, that seems like a very undesirable framing. Yeah. So your take is more, I like long-termism, I like global health and well-being. And it turns out that working on global health and well-being gets me a pretty good outcome on, on both of these worldviews. So that's just a bonus. And that, that doesn't seem really objectionable or lacking integrity. Yeah, exactly. Right. If, if I was like, oh, I waste my days because of this work, I think that would lack integrity. And I, and I think that would be really objectionable. But if it's like, I think I get to do good stuff and I have a lot of moral sympathy for this other view. And the fact that I think that the good stuff also could in some sense further that other moral view is all to the good in my mind. Yeah. 
Yeah, something that I'd feel incredibly icky about is kind of misleading people about my actual views. It's possible maybe in my in my role in particular that is kind of a big no-no because you want people to take seriously what you're saying and not think that you're just running some ploy in order to get them to do to do what you want. I guess I suppose that's not what's happening here because there is just different people who have different views and I suppose people are getting exposed to people who have these different opinions and then and then realizing that there's a debate within within effective altruism and, and within open fill about how to approach these really difficult questions. I think that's right. I think part of the tension and the feeling of inauthenticity might come from a view that like the actual motivation for global health and well-being and long-termism are like very different. Or it's like if you thought of global health and well-being as like being motivated by like a person affecting view of population ethics, then you might think like, oh, you're like doing violence to that work because like you're actually motivated by like the total view instead. And so like you're you're there's like some fraud going on. And my view is it's just like it's a lot less about different values and a lot more about like epistemics and uncertainty and reasoning. And so it's not like I'm like pretending to care about people dying. Like I super <laughs> care about people dying and want to prevent it. And then I also have some sympathy for this view that's like, wow, the long term future could be huge. And the fact that my position helps allow me to like marry those things rather than treat them as polar opposites is something that I actually think is like cool and good and unobjectionable. And I mean, I think that your point of like trying to be honest about this is actually like really interesting and challenging because yeah, I mean, my perception, like I was, I was pressing you on this earlier, right? Is that for the people who are sort of, I perceive as like most deep in the EA community. And again, I have a biased sample sitting in San Francisco. I think a lot of people are like super, super focused on AI. Um, and I perceive 80,000 hours is like trying to diversify that in some sense. But like, I think if you, if you had the sort of the most representative sample of your sense of the risk space or something, you might end up with like, you know, nine out of 10 podcasts being about AI and, and the podcasts are like, actually quite weighted towards AI, but like maybe at 30% or, you know, I don't, I don't know what the ratio is. Yeah. One of these instrumental arguments that I'm a little bit skeptical about is the idea that we'll kind of learn from experience within some domains and then that will kind of carry over to us being able to have more impact in other areas because of the lessons that we learned. I think, I guess there's two reasons. One is like, you know, how much, how much do the people who are working on AI at OpenFill like really learn from the experience of, of grants from other areas that are very different, like animal welfare? I would kind of expect that the crossover lessons would be pretty weak just because these are such different, different disciplines. And then the other thing is, if you wanted to learn from experience in philanthropy or in trying to do good, it seems like there's a wealth of other people who you could study who aren't within effective altruism specifically or aren't your, your specific colleagues. And so, you know, running programs with the goal of learning from those experiences would seem somewhat wasteful relative to just going in and reading existing histories. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think those are both really interesting points. Let me answer them in reverse order. On the second point, I mean, we have invested a lot in the history of philanthropy, and we think that we can learn a material amount from those successes and that we should try to do more. And I think that is sort of cross-cuttingly applicable, and it's something that we, we think is really valuable and we're glad to do. I also think, it, you know, sometimes it's hard to learn from history, and, like, you make your own mistakes, and, like, we're run by a bunch of people. And so I, I do think people sort of, like, learn more from their own colleagues, their own experiences, than they do from books a lot of the time. And if that weren't the case, like, that would be really cool. But I, I do think there is a, there's a real difference there. And then on your first question, I think it's true that, you know, I don't want to overstate the degree of cost-cuttingness of lessons, but things like how do you do policy advocacy philanthropy really well? Like there, there's a lot of stuff at like that level of abstraction on tactics that I think actually are quite cross-cutting and where now the long-termists are like trying to draw on some of that knowledge, trying to draw on some of those experiences. Sometimes trying to draw on like literally like the same people or firms that we've used. And I think that they are quite happy to have those experiences drawn. And so another way you might put it would be like, if you thought that every dollar of long-termism was like an undifferentiated equal level of cost effectiveness, maybe you wouldn't want to trade any of it off. But I actually think within long-termism, you should expect like quite steeply diminishing returns where like the marginal dollar is like vastly, vastly worse than the average. 
potentially orders of magnitude so. And so the long-termists actually might be like quite willing to give up the last 10% of their money to have some like lessons that are going to make their like average or frontier grant better. And so I don't think this would get you to like a 50-50 split between long-termism and global health and well-being. But I think it might get you to like, I don't know, 10, 20% of the portfolio should be on global health and well-being, even if you only had the like, in the long run, we want humanity's future to go well in mind. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, depending on what catastrophic risks you think are most serious, it seems like the effect of further work could become negative relatively quickly. Or like these are very sensitive areas potentially where you really want to know what you're doing if you're going to go and go and meddle in them for, for reasons that you've given earlier. And I think that's one reason why you don't want people who aren't actually really interested in the topics or don't have suitable skills to be going in because it's not as if it's like a really absurd tail risk to have a negative impact. It seems like that's entirely possible. And that's one reason why you might not want to just go in with billions and billions of dollars that you're trying to give away as quickly as possible because you just end up funding things that are neutral or harmful. Yeah, I think I think we think that a lot of things might be harmful and there's a lot of sign uncertainty over specific stuff. And so it's part of why like, well, like let's just throw money at anybody who says they have these values and they will like, would probably not be a very good strategy towards the goal. And I think it's surprising sometimes how big these considerations can be, especially if you have sort of a little bit more of like a fragile worldview. Like I was surprised recently to like go back and like understand that Carl Sagan had written about this in like the seventies when there was discussion over like detecting asteroids and like potentially being able to like redirect them if they were coming on a path towards earth. And he made this argument that like, it's fine to invest in detection, but we should really not build the technology to be able to like redirect an asteroid's path. Because the base rate of risk is so low that it's just vastly more likely that if you had that technology, you would use it to like extort richer countries or something, or like just threaten the world with a doomsday cult, rather than like be able to prevent the base rate. And I think that like when you think about analogs to bio risk, and arguably maybe just some forms of AI, like these might be like weird enough, esoteric enough kinds of considerations that even just raising the alarm could end up sometimes being like net harmful. And that's something that my colleagues do think a lot about, but I don't know that has necessarily trickled down into the rest of the EA community. And I think that the way in which that will interact with an expected value calculation, where like uncertainty will make you want to regress your estimates, I think can help you understand why like expected value wise, you could still end up thinking that like, yeah, a lot of global health and well-being might be, might be desirable because of just how much uncertainty you have. Yeah. All right. I want to now turn to arguments against working on global health and well-being. I had a bunch of arguments that I was potentially going to make, but I think it seems like you just have such a balanced perspective and you're aware of the arguments on both sides that I'm kind of actually just curious to probe your thinking. And especially here, earlier you were saying it sounded like you were kind of skeptical about the broad long-termist work, but that you're more excited about some of the targeted long-termist work. So I'm, I'm keen to hear kind of the, the affirmative case in favor of that, given the things that you know from, from your work. Yeah, I mean, I'm really very glad that Openfield does some work on AI risk. I always worry that, like, this is not my area. I don't understand it. I could just be, like, terribly, painfully confused. But the fact that we're able to spend some of our resources, and also, like, my colleagues do know way more, on this, like, looming change that's coming, seemingly very plausibly this century, to, like, the vast future of the universe, to me feels like a huge, huge deal. And I'm really glad that we're able to devote work to it. I think the big question is, like, what can we do to make it go better? <laughs> and I sometimes feel like there's a little bit of a, like some disassociation between like the big philosophical case for like why we care so much about it and why the stakes are so high, which I, I buy. And then like in practice, somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to train a language model to reliably not swear. And I'm like, <laughs> I, and it's not to say that there's no deep connection. It, I think it's just, it's hard to have the same like 
wow, this is the world's most important thing when you're, you're training a language model to not swear. That's not to say it's not. I don't, I don't know. But part of what I like about the diversity of our work is that it, it lets you feel like you can do some of that and some of these other things and, and still be making concrete progress. What stuff are you most excited about that's outside of the global health and well-being bucket? It sounded like some of the targeted AI work you think could just end up being incredibly important to, to how things go. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm really glad that we're able to do it. We also invest a lot in growing the EA community. And I think those are good investments. Like, I, you know, I feel pretty good about that community. And I think they like the idea of being able to like get people to like take impact seriously in their careers and donate more are things that I actually see a lot of value in. And I, I would like to disseminate more. And then the biosecurity work, I, I'm a little bit less up to speed on. And so I don't feel like I have as good of a picture of, but I, again, like the philosophy, I mean, coming out of COVID, I think that the, the case for why this might be a high expected value work feels like, I think a very intuitive idea to people. And so honestly, yeah, we talked about this earlier, but like the biggest thing on long-termism is like, I totally buy the appeal and it's just cluelessness that makes me uncertain about it. And I think that also makes me like somewhat uncertain about a bunch of the global health and well-being stuff too. Yeah. So setting aside AI and bio for a second, I guess earlier I slightly put you in a corner where you were strongly encouraged to diss kind of the other long-termist concerns like international relations or or decision-making. Is is there anything in that kind of more general world improvement or other long-termist interest areas that you think uh, kind of is promising and you'd like to see people explore whether there's something great to be done there? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think I'm like nervous about some of the, the fuzziness aspects of some things like improving human judgment or, you know, improving international relations. And I, I think that that might end up in a sort of bad part of the solution space, according to me. But I'm super excited about long-termism as an idea. And I think trying to come up with really concrete, sort of robustly good proposals for like other long-termist ideas that are beyond AI risk and bio risk is a really promising, interesting area. And so one issue is that I don't have enough of a view on the risk profile myself to say like, on the margin should even more X risk motivated people be going into AI than currently are. But I think that the case for open fill to spend more money on long-termism might actually be a little bit stronger if the, like the set of problems that the long-termists are working on was a little bit wider or more diverse because the more it's like one or two concentrated bets on like AI and bio, the more it feels like, okay, we want to put into these bets, but we, we want to hedge those bets. We want to do some other things first. But if it were like, actually there's 10 different uncorrelated causes for long-termism that all look like they're good. And some of them you can make concrete measurable progress. Like I think that the case that you, you don't want to just bet on this one worldview would get a little bit weaker because like you would have a lot more like internal benefits of diversification where you'd be learning lessons, you'd be recruiting different kinds of people, you'd be like meeting different people in the world. And so I like the idea of long-termism sort of growing and being a bigger tent as a community. I think those are good. It's just I kind of feel like the things that get classified as broad long-termism right now often feel to me like they're just so fuzzy that I'm not sure that how to engage. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit depressing earlier, but let's let's re-engage with the cluelessness concern briefly. I feel like maybe I didn't back long-termism enough earlier because I was just letting you lay out a view. But if, if we take cluelessness quite seriously, if we try to put that hat on, I suppose, what could we then do? Like what hope can we can we grab onto? And it seems like one approach would be to say, I'm going to bank on the idea that a really crucial time is coming quite soon. And so I'm going to be able to understand that situation and actually influence it because it's actually happening. Like most of the decisions are going to be made now. And this is kind of the, the AI story where you're like, well, the future at some point is going to become more regular and predictable. And like, what if that is going to be put into motion quite soon? 
then I might know the people or the organizations that are involved and I can try to influence that in the normal way. I suppose you have unintended consequences there, even when you're just operating in in, in normal life, but they might not be so grim as trying to create a series of consequences that play out over hundreds of thousands of years. Another approach might be to, and I think Bostrom has this really excellent presentation on this from, I think, back in 2014 or something, which I think was seminal at the time, and maybe we just haven't managed to actually advance this research agenda very much. But it was, it was basically saying cluelessness is this really big problem, but what we need to do is find some guideposts, find some things that we can improve about the world now that we can kind of that we can measure now that we think correlate as well as is possible, as well as is practical with good long-term outcomes for humanity as a whole. And there, you know, you have a reasonable list of things that could be on there, like, you know, are countries reasonably democratic? Like, how violent are people by nature? How well do we understand science in general? And in all of these cases, you can come up with stories under which improving that kind of guidepost could be positive or it could be negative. But the philosophy was like, surely we can find something that we can influence, some like measure about the nature of the world and how humanity is doing that is more likely to be positive than negative, even if we're still going to be quite unsure. And then that's the thing that it will be most impactful to, to push on from a broad point of view. And so I don't know exactly what that best guidepost or the best thing that we could change about the present world now in order to influence the long term would be. But I would be surprised if there wasn't something in that category where I would say, yes, I think it's more likely than not to be good to change this thing. What do you make of that kind of line of argument? Yeah, I guess I'm open to that. I'm skeptical that we can really reason well enough about the future that we can get to like more than like 50 plus epsilon percent like directional <laughs> confidence sort of. So I don't want to be a nihilist about it. Like I think the, the future of humanity is so important and so big or hopefully so big that people making these like crazy bets about how they try to influence and make it go better is a really good thing. And I don't want to talk your listeners out of doing that. I think it's like, there's like a ton of morally at stake. And if people feel like they can have good, meaningful lives, like trying to pursue these probabilistic bets, I think that's healthy. And then I, I guess I kind of just, it's almost like an attitudinal thing. Like I want people going in to that with a sense of like, it is vastly, overwhelmingly likely that the channel through which I imagine impacting the far future is like totally misguided. And that's not to say that they shouldn't take the action. I actually think maybe people should even be like willing to make like vast personal sacrifices to take those kinds of actions because the, the expected value could be so high. But I think that there's something attitudinally around like, really inhabiting and recognizing how overwhelmingly likely to be like wrong and naive we are when we like try to like shape the future a million years in the future. That makes me want to say, not that we shouldn't try it, but that like we shouldn't bet everything on it and that we should sort of bring the right attitude of, of modesty and uncertainty to that work. Because yeah, I just feel like if you looked back and tried to play forward, like how much can you predict history I think you'd be really bad at it. I think how like we're really bad at like predicting international relations. I think there's just like so much contingency. Not to say that we shouldn't do things or that like they always end up being worth zero, but that appreciating that contingency, I think will like push back against a bunch of forms of fanaticism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a view that lends itself to more modesty and much less to fanaticism because uh, the whole thing is like, wow, it's just like such a struggle to find anything that's going to improve the improve the future. But yeah, I don't feel as hopeless about it as it sounds like you do. I mean, if you think about, you know, reducing climate change, is that more likely to make the future go better or is it more likely to make the future go badly? I mean, I suppose you could spend a lot of time analyzing that, but my guess is you'd end up concluding that it's more likely to, to make the future go better. You know, if America ceases to be a democratic country, is that likely to make the future go better or likely to make it go worse? 
you know, those things don't seem, say, super levered, where one person is going to have a massive influence on that and then have a massive influence on how humanity plays out in the long term. But there are a lot of things where I'm like, you know, 55-45 or 60-40, that this is more likely to be good than bad. I just feel like most bets about what you would actually do, A, their counterfactual could also be good. And so there's more like trade-offs in both factors on each side that you need to weigh. And B, the actual thing in front of you is, is like many, many of those bets together, where it's like each one might be 55, 45. Like, you know, maybe the US becoming an autocracy is bad for the future. Like, sure, I, I'm, that sounds like maybe more than 55, 40, right? Like, but <laughs> yeah. it's also like, is that, is that a meaningful thing? Like, what, what, what am I even saying there? And like, how bad in expectation is the badness for the future, right? Is it like one in a million or like one in a trillion? And, and like, is that a kind of question that I can actually like, form a reasonable, coherent view on is something I'm really uncertain about. Like, going back to your climate change point, I agree that climate change, like, it seems directionally worse rather than better for the future. But, like, is climate change worse rather than better in a way that saving the life of a random kid born in, like, rural West Africa is better or worse for the future? Like, is it differently so? Is, like, I think the claim that, like, long-termists actually need to win. And I'm really, really uncertain of that. And I feel like uncertainty... Again, I, I'm not saying it's better. I, I really don't want to imply that I know it's better. I'm just saying, like, uncertainty should make you want to hedge. That seems like a very open question. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of this argument? I don't think I've ever I've thought of this a few times and then never actually told it to anyone. But you can imagine that, like, say we're 50-50 unsure whether the world is predictable and understandable and influenceable in a way that humans can actually do. So then you might think, well, there's a 50% chance that it's just, this is a hopeless enterprise, that the world is just such a crapshoot and it's so chaotic and so unpredictable what effects your actions have, that in that case, it's basically a write-off. And I'm just going to say, well, if that's the world we live in, then too bad, and I can't really do anything good. But there's a 50% chance that it is somewhat predictable, that you're more likely to do good than bad if you try to make things better. And so then in expectation across these two worldviews, you have a positive influence. And also you should kind of bank on the idea that you're in, in, in a positive world. I think the way that this wouldn't work is if there was a third equally likely possibility where when you do things, you're likely to make them negative and likely to make them worse. But I find the idea that when people are trying to produce an outcome, they're more likely to make it happen than, than to reduce it by an equal degree kind of reasonable. I think it's like, it's a good example of a prior that seems like very reasonable in normal situations. And like when you're worried about anthropogenic risks to humanity, like an extremely bad prior, honestly. But the, just to be clear, like I, I wanted to go back and agree with like your first two points where I'm like, on the one hand, like very glad that people do a lot of long-termism, even though I think the right attitude is like deep, deep uncertainty and self-skepticism. And I really don't want to expect value over like the claimed impact where it's like, I feel like long-termists will often sort of gesture towards these claims of like, well, if we're right, then like it's like, you know, 10 to the 40 stars that we're going to, you know, take over and populate in the future. And once you start to try to reason about that in like a sort of explicit expected value kind of way, that number just like so dominates everything else in a way that I think is actually perverse because like all that happened is somebody said something, you know, like th there's no, I think, deep truth trackingness to these sorts of claims. And so I don't want to be so deflationary about it that people walk away and are like, wow, nobody should be long-termist. I'm like, I think long-termism is great. I think more people should be long-termist. But I think that the uncertainty that we have about this is like in some sense deeper and like sort of more like cluster thinking-y such that not that we shouldn't do some, but that like the sort of like totalism that will be implied by like typical or like basic expected value thinking seems like that's kind of where I want to get off the train. Hmm. Yeah.
All right, let's wrap up this part of the interview talking about global health and well-being versus long-termism. I suppose to bring it all together, it would be good to put together, I suppose, the, the competing weights of arguments here with the worldview diversification issue, which it sounds like to you is a, is a really kind of primary, primary concern. I guess, yeah, doing that, where do you come down on kind of how much should open fill or the effective altruism community kind of allocate to each of these different umbrellas? Yeah, I mean, I think more about the open fill question than the than the effective altruism question. But I feel like something in the ballpark of 50% to long-termism and 50% to the global health and well-being portfolio makes sense. And I think that's also probably where we're expecting to end up. Could be sort of, I think, broadly between like a 30 to 70% range, sort of either direction. And, you know, we'll try to do more to figure that out in the coming years as we get a better sense of what opportunities are available to us, where can we cost-effectively spend money, and also maybe more philosophical progress on how to think about things like worldview diversification in, in a reasonably compelling, coherent way. I really wish we had better sort of principles for allocating and figuring out what is the right amount there, but I, I really don't think we do at this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw this survey from last year that was aggregating a bunch of different sources on giving among effective altruists. And I think it concluded that about two thirds was going to global health and well-being and about one third to long-termism. I'm not sure whether that's so much a conscious decision necessarily, at least on Open Fool's part, it seems like the limiting factor on the long-termist grant making is actually finding things that you're confident are good on long-termist grounds, which is, <laughs> even if you try to go all in on, on long-termism, it sounds like you might struggle to actually give away all the, all of the money that you have within any plausible time frame. Yeah, both sides of Open Fill are still growing and are, are like well short of where we should be spending sort of given the, our planned budget allocations. And so we're overall trying to figure out like where can we spend most cost effectively going forward. And that's true on the global health and well-being side and the long-termist side. But I think global health and well-being is sort of closer to where it needs to be in some sense, whereas long-termists have a lot more growth ahead of them that I expect to be sort of associated with trying to figure out more about the world. Um, and they also think, I think plausibly that they're going to learn a lot more for the next like decade or two about the future of technology. Whereas for global health and well-being, we actually think probably like with every passing year, our opportunity set gets a little bit worse. And so we have a little bit more of a stronger incentive to like get going. And so that's a lot of what my team is focused on these days. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so it sounds like the baseline is something around 50-50, but it could go, you know, 30-70, 70-30. What kinds of things could you learn or could Open Phil learn that would potentially shift that one way or the other? Yeah. I think a couple things. So one would just be, you know, are we finding good opportunities on either side? You know, if if neither side feels like they can spend their portfolio in a reasonable fashion, that's a pretty strong argument to give more to the other side. And in practice, I sort of expect global health and well-being to be able to find sort of like more large-scale ways to spend money just because it's like sort of more aligned with the way that most folks in the world currently think. And so that that could definitely be a factor. Another factor could be like if the long-termists just came up with a really scalable way to spend money that they thought actually had like a, a good, more robust chance. Maybe that would argue for like more rather than less. And maybe if, if there were more long-termist causes, like, I don't know if Holden necessarily agrees with me. And so this would be something that I'm freelancing a little bit here, but I could imagine if there were, if there was more internal diversity to the long-termist side where it didn't feel like all of long-termism was like one bet on a very, very specific expected value play, then I could also imagine that being a case for marginally more rather than marginally less. But I think that would be a tweak around the edges, not not a fundamental change to that ratio. Yeah, I guess an, an interesting phenomenon that's different between make grant making versus career planning is that if you kind of set out to have a, a career that has an effect on the on the very long term future, in a sense, you're 
doing something that is going to develop over over 40 years time. So you have potentially quite a while to see this space grow and to like rely on later research on what's going to be useful. But that doesn't really help us help OpenFill make grants right now. <laughs> that maybe suggests that the program as a whole might flourish and find more really useful ways to, to allocate grants in, in, in coming decades. But maybe kind of the, the fact that the area is young is more challenging for present day grant making than it is for like long term long term career planning. I think that that's probably right, although I think of it as also a big problem for long-term career planning. So you, you, you might have more insight as to how to do that well than I do. I kind of worry that, yeah, we just, we're starting off, so we're so early in this, we don't know so much. And so I guess it just makes me really, if I were planning my own career, like, and I were a, a diet-in-the-wool long-termist, I think I'd be really emphasizing, like, optionality and just trying to do things that would be, like, relatively robust and scalable because I personally, as Alexander, really expect the long-termist best recommendations to change. And so I think doing something that's like somehow going to be like robustly useful for long-termism or, or a skill set that would allow you to be useful in the future feels to me like something that's at, at stake there. And it, it's hard to do as a funder because it's like, what is robustly useful? Like we, we try to like invest in research. I guess keep but, the money in the bank. Yeah. Which yeah. I mean, is implicitly <laughs> what you do when you're not spending it. So Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's push on and talk quickly about this blog post that you wrote in 2019 called GiveWell's Top Charities Are Increasingly Hard to Beat. Do you mind if I give kind of a brief summary of how I read this post and then maybe my, my main question about it? Yeah, totally. So, okay, yeah. So as I understood it, basically it was saying OpenPhil has been making grants to, you know, reliable, proven, give well charities for a while, things like the Against Malaria Foundation, which distributes bed nets. But it's been hoping to maybe find things that are that are better than that by using science and politics and maybe other methods to get leverage. And so it's been exploring these, exploring these new approaches, trying to find things that, that might win out over helping the, the world's poorest people. And you'd been doing that by working on scientific research and policy change in the United States. But the leverage that you'd gotten from those potentially superior approaches was something like 10 to 1,000, like probably closer to 10 than 1,000. And that wasn't enough to offset the 100 to X leverage that you get from transferring money from one of the world's richest countries to the world's poorest people. Is that kind of, kind of right? Yeah, I think that's a great summary. Yeah. Okay. That kind of raises the question to me, if you were able to get even 10x leverage using science and and policy by trying to help Americans by like improving US economic policy or doing scientific research that would help Americans, shouldn't you then be able to kind of blow against Malaria Foundation out of the water by applying those same methods like science and policy in the developing world to also help the the world's poorest, poorest people? Yeah, so let me give two reactions. One is, I take that to be sort of the conclusion of that post. Like, I think that the the argument at the end of the post is like, we're hiring, we think we should be able to find better causes, come help us. And we did, in fact, hire a few people, and they have been doing a bunch of work on this over the last few years to try to find better causes. And I do think, in principle, being able to combine these sources of leverage to sort of, I think about it as like multiplying 100 Xs, you should be able to get something that I think is better than the the sort of AMF-type give-well margin. But... I don't think it blows it out of the water by any means. And so this, this sort of prefigures the conclusion in some ways from some of our recent work. I think we think, A, the GiveWell top charities like, like AMF is actually, I think, 10 times better than sort of the give directly type cash transfer model of like just moving resources to the poorest people in the world. And so that already gives you sort of like the 10x multiplier on the GiveWell side. And so then we need to go find something that is a multiplier on top of that. And I actually think that's quite a bit harder to do because that's a much more like specialized targeted intervention relative to the like relatively like broad generic just give cash to the world's poorest people which is a little bit easier to get leverage on and so i do think like we should be optimistic we should we should expect science and advocacy causes that are 
aim towards the world's poor to be able to compete with the kind of like 10x multiplier of sort of like cost effectiveness and evidence that GiveWell sort of gets from AMF to give directly. But I'm uncertain to skeptical after a few years of work on this that we're going to be able to blow it out of the water. And so I think about it as like, it gets you with a lot of work and a lot of strategic effort into the ballpark. And so we have a couple of these new causes that I could talk about where like, we think we're in the ballpark of the give all top charities, but we haven't found anything yet that feels like, oh, it's super scalable and in expectation 10 times better than the Against Malaria Foundation. We think we're kind of like, we're, we're working hard to find stuff that's in the ballpark. Yeah, it seems like if distributing bed nets is something like 10 times as good as just giving people the equivalent amount of cash, shouldn't you then be able to get leverage on top of that by lobbying governments to allocate more aid funding to malaria prevention, including distributing bed nets or doing scientific research into, you know, a malaria vaccine, which uh, I guess it seems like there's a pretty good candidate that's come out recently that might really help us get rid of malaria completely. Why don't those kind of in, in addition help you get further leverage and, and have even more impact? I mean, you, you sort of see the issue with infinite regress, right? It's like, well, why can't you go one layer more meta than that and advocate for people too? Um, and so I think I think the answer is that, A, in a weird way, the problems in the world actually just will not support giving at that scale in a super cost-effective way. So I think this is kind of an interesting point that I wish effective altruists would pay a little bit more attention to. I don't, I don't feel like it, it, I, I haven't done a good job articulating it, so it, it's not like something that people should necessarily understand. But like... I think the Give All Top Charities actually set like a very, very, very high bar in terms of spending at large, large scale. And so one way to put it would be like, there's the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. They compiled the Global Burden of Disease Report. They try to say like, how many life years are lost to every cause of death around the world every year? And they estimate that there's something like two and a half billion dallies lost to all causes every year. And I think GiveWell, this is off the top of my head, so I could be wrong, but I think GiveWell thinks they can save a, a disability adjusted life year for something like $50. And so if you were trying to spend, you know, just a billion dollars a year, which is like, you know, 3% of the NIH budget, less than 0.3% of like US philanthropic dollars every year on stuff that's as cost effective as that, then you would need to be reducing total global life years lost from all causes everywhere by just under 1%. And I think that if you sit with that number, that's just like really, really high. Amongst other things, it just shows that if you were trying to do that at at 100 times bigger scale, you literally couldn't because you would have already solved all health problems. And so I don't know where, where the curve is of like declining marginal returns, but I would guess it sets in pretty steeply before even like 10 times bigger than that. And so I think people sometimes underestimate like the, the size of the opportunities when they think about like, oh, we can make a leveraged play that could be 10 times better. And it's like, maybe an individual donor could, but open fill that will need to eventually be giving away like a billion dollars a year, maybe more. That, that is actually not like the relevant benchmark for us. Like we're giving at a scale where it has to be able to absorb more resources. Hmm. Okay, so there could be particularly good grants in science and politics that do do this, but it's just they're not going to be able to absorb nearly as much money as, as you need to be able to give away. So you want to make those, but then, you, but then it's also going to be very important to find other things that can actually take billions. Yep. Okay, that, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's super interesting. One other observation is just that like when we've tried to look at through history of like what are other grants other people have made when we tried to analyze our own grants, like we typically see things that look more like 10x leverage than 100x leverage. Like I think we almost never see 100x even sort of from hits. And the more what you are pursuing sort of seems idiosyncratic, I think the harder it is to even get 10x leverage because the leverage operates through these sort of like intermediary forces in the world that are like in science they're driven by like academic scientific incentives in advocacy like it has to go through congress or you know 
they're just limits for like the level of alignment you can push when you're trying to like lever these bigger systems. It's interesting that you think of distributing bed nets as having leverage over cash transfers, so, so, so give directly. What is the source of leverage there? Is it that you know that bed nets are maybe better than the recipients realize, and so you're willing to pay more for the principal than they are? I think that's a really great question, and I, I don't think people ask it enough. Like I remember when, um, yeah, like in my I think in my first year at GiveWell, I wrote a blog post about this. Like, how should you think about bed nets versus cash transfers? And I think there's a few things. One is like, yeah, the idea that people are doing expected value calculations when they buy bed nets or don't buy bed nets. I think is like just not an accurate description of human affairs and they would be really bad at doing them if they tried. And so I don't think people are good at making that kind of judgment. Also, like the beneficiaries are mostly kids. And so like, it's not like they can be self-interested and, and invest in their own future. It requires altruism. And actually, like, I think people think that something like 50% of the benefits of bed nets are externalities because they're insecticide treated. And so like you actually kill mosquitoes. You don't just prevent them from eating you. And so the typical public goods services argument for providing goods and externalities, I think applies there and would make you want to invest in bed nets and not just cash transfers. But yeah, I think basically like, I think about sort of like GiveWell is broadly showing that basically trying to do like evidence-backed and like having a really intense lens around cost stuckness can kind of get you like, roughly speaking, like a 10x gain. And then I think sort of going from the rich world to the poor world can get you like, roughly speaking, like a 100x gain. And I do think that's an interesting parallel to keep in mind when you think about things like for effective altruists, is your edge like philosophy and values or is your edge more like analytical evidence-based reasoning? And I, I think in a lot of ways, actually, often it feels like the edge is more the values. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I know some people are really skeptical of the idea that, you know, experts at an organization like GiveWell could be smarter about spending money than, you know, the world's poorest people spending their own money on, the, on themselves. And I think if they were trying to spend like a large fraction of their budget, that would be very well-placed skepticism. But I guess the bar here is like, can we find anything that these people are significantly undervaluing where it would be really good if they if they got the, the product rather than just the equivalent amount of cash? And that, you know, with a significant research team that's relying on all of this kind of other research that's been done. So it's, it's a big effort just to find something that costs $5 per person or $5 per household that these people have undervalued. And that, that seems like more, a more plausible bar to clear. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I have some personal sympathy for the people who love the autonomy case for like, just, just give cash. But I really do think that when it comes to it, like you actually can just find opportunities that look a lot better, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's push on and talk about jobs at OpenPhil and I guess the new problem areas that you're potentially moving into. Yeah, you mentioned these briefly at the beginning, but let's recap. Uh, kind of what roles are you hiring for at the moment or potentially in the near future? Yeah, so there's two big clusters. So one is a couple of new program officers in new areas, South Asian air quality and global aid advocacy. And then a second is folks to work on cause prioritization on the global health and well-being team to basically pick new causes just like we just did with South Asian air quality and global aid advocacy. And if you're up for it, I'd be pretty interested in talking through a little bit of the case for like we do South Asian air quality. I think it's pretty interesting and it's like open Phil's first new cause area in a long time. And I, I think it sort of gives you a sense of like, what would the work look like? What kinds of things would you be thinking about? Yeah, I was so excited to see this in your in your notes. I'm fascinated to learn about, yeah, what's the case in favor and how did you end up pu- pushing the button on it? Yeah, p- pulling the trigger. Um, well, well <laughs> we have trigger, it yet, right? Yeah. So we, we need to hire and see if we can get somebody good to come join us. But the South Asian air quality, I think is a really interesting example where, you know, you know this, but your listeners might not. We have these three criteria that we use for picking causes, importance, tractability, and neglectedness. And in importance, I think this is sort of a crazy case. So I mentioned earlier IHME, who produces the Global Burn of Disease Report. They estimate that, Almost 3% of all life years lost to all causes globally are lost due to air pollution in India. 
And that's a mix of sort of indoor smoke from cooking and outdoor air pollution from burning coal, from cars, from burning fuel crops. And, you know, in some ways, like, I think it's appropriate when you hear numbers like that to be skeptical and to say, like, should I really believe these? And, you know, you have to rely on some social science to get figures like that. You can't really run randomized control trials where you expose people to a lifetime of air pollution, thankfully. And so, you know, as with all social science literatures, I think there's like some reasonable concern or question of like, is the magnitude that we're getting right? But I don't think it's going to make you want to downweight that by a lot. Like maybe it's a factor of two or something. And so you're starting from such a high base that the importance just ends up being like continuing to be huge. And then on the neglectedness criteria, like it gets a really small amount of philanthropy right now. So, you know, the best report we've seen on this, I think estimated something like $7 million a year of funding for, for air quality work in India. And that's just like for something that's causing so much of the, like all of the health problems in the world. That's like a trivial, trivial fraction. And, you know, a lot of those funders are actually motivated by climate and like climate will get you some of the benefits that you care about in air pollution, but they can come apart. And so I think there's a lot more to be done there. The last criteria, honestly, is, is like the weak point on this one where tractability is a challenge. The, you know, funding in India as a foreign foundation is hard and frankly getting harder. And, you know, air pollution has a bunch of different causes and there's sort of no one silver bullet policy that's like, OK, if you could just get you know, the legislature to pass this, then you would be OK. But a bunch of things from sort of trying to encourage modern stove usage to getting coal power plants to adopt these units that remove small particulate matter from the air to changing emission standards for new vehicles all seem like they would have a reasonable shot at this. And so, you know, basically, like, again, like, to show that we're sort of comfortable with some forms of explicit expected value thinking, if we like did something like quadruple the funding in the field, we would only need that to reduce air pollution in India by something like 1% relative to the counterfactual in order for that to be more cost effective than the Gibble Top Charities. And I really don't think that's trivial. Like, I think that's actually like a hard, high bar, but I think it's probably doable. And so maybe that's an example of something where it's like, you're like, why can't you beat the Gibble Top Charities by like 10 or 100 times? And I'm like, well, I have something that's like a huge, huge problem that gets no other philanthropy. And I think I can make progress on it, but I really don't think I can make like enough progress on it that I'm going to be able to like be 10 times more cost effective than the Gibble Top Charities. Yes, it's so interesting to, to, to hear those numbers laid down. I don't think I'd fully appreciated just what it would imply to be able to to massively beat the the give or recommended charities. So it's good to take a minute for that to fully sink in. Yeah, I, I guess regular listeners will know that this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine that people just don't seem to appreciate how severely damaging air pollution is. How much did you spend time like critiquing these papers? Because I guess my understanding is that people have come at this from different fields using different methods and kind of they just keep finding that serious air pollution, especially for children, it tends to, well, it causes people to live less long. And it also seems to cause serious problems with education and productivity uh, that people find it harder to work and get things done when there's air pollution all around them. Yeah, so we have not gone deep on the education and productivity and sort of intellectual cognitive literature. We really came at it from a health perspective. And I think that there's like, especially for sort of acute health problems, like there's just very, very good evidence from a ton of different settings showing that, you know, especially sort of like young kids and older adults suffer from like acute problems when air pollution is really bad. It's harder to get good evidence on the chronic problems because you just don't have the same high frequency variation. And so like, how bad is it to be exposed to, you know, 70 of these particular matters versus 10 over decades is a hard problem to study. But the our read on the research from, again, a bunch of different sources is that it looks consistent with like the numbers that basically the global burden of disease type report is using. One challenge, like one area that I wish there was a little bit better work or was a little bit more compelling is like animal models. Like it really does feel like you should be able to just like basically like expose rats to a lot of particulate matter and like see if they die more. And my impression is that that had been done sort of in an older generation of literature and they had not found like necessarily like big lifespan effects. I don't think you should think of that as like 
decisive because like rats aren't humans, you know, like our lungs are actually different. As I understand it, that's even true of, of cigarettes. That This was actually one of the defenses used. Was that it, it seems like cigarettes don't harm rats as much as they harm people. Oh, that actually makes me feel a lot better. So I'm, I'm glad to know that. Thank you, thank you oh. for telling me that. I did not know that. Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go chase that up. But remember, listen, smoking is very bad. <laughs> but I, 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 you do see a bunch of animal evidence that it causes like specific problems like atherosclerosis, like lung problems. And so like even if you're not seeing like animals recapitulating the lifespan effects, I think we do see some biological evidence that these are these are plausible channels. So I think overall the case just looks really strong. And you see some of this research from the US where it's like, yeah, strengthening air pollution standards actually like more than sort of like paid for in a regulatory sense, a bunch of Obama era like climate regulations, because it was just like coal plants kill a ton of people and we place a highway on like the value of sexual life. Mm, yeah. Just quickly, like what kind of grants could you imagine them making? Yeah. So, you know, this is where the hire becomes really important. And like, we, we want to hire somebody who knows more about this field and is better connected than we are. So we don't totally know yet. But the one grant we made so far is to pay for sort of a lot better low cost monitoring, these like relatively cheap system, like sensor systems that can be deployed across India and give people just like a very rough, quick sense of like, what's the weather like outside? And I think they're literally from, um, I'm blanking on the name of the website, but it's like the same website that I would check when um, like during the fires in California to, to like see like what what are the cheap sensors that my neighbors have. So it's an academic partnership with some Indian universities and UC Berkeley. And the so, th- you know, that monitoring is like one aspect of the problem. Then there's a bunch of like trying to source like what are, what are actually like breaking down all the different causes of this. So then you can try to have like relevant policy solutions, actually paying for these scrubbers for coal plants. I think it'd be unlikely that we literally pay for them, but you could advocate for like the enforcement of the actually existing regulation that says they're supposed to have these that prevent coal emissions. And so there's just a bunch of things like that. Of like A lot of it would end up being like advocacy, technical assistance, training, monitoring. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough multifaceted problem. So I don't think it would be trivial to make progress on it, but it seems like a swing worth taking to us. Yeah. The other new program you're probably going to launch is Global Aid Advocacy, right? Yeah, that's right. And the the basic idea there is very much inspired by this leverage point. It's to say, look, we think we've been able to sometimes influence state legislators on criminal justice policy. We've sometimes been able to move macroeconomic policymakers. Let, let's focus on trying to get more and better aid spending from rich countries. And so I think like exactly the sort of logic you were pushing earlier is the logic here. And you know, the Gates Foundation funds a lot of stuff in this space, but we're not sure that they've necessarily like exhausted all of the options. And so we do think that there's there's room to grow and room to do more. And that's a space where it is it is a bigger space in the world. Like there's probably a couple hundred million dollars a year of spending from sort of philanthropic spending to try to do this kind of advocacy. And we don't want to just focus on the US necessarily. I think Europe, I mean, obviously like there's been a fairly active debate recently in the UK about this and some maybe emerging donor countries like South Korea or Japan where there's less history could all be interesting places to try to like fund advocacy for for more and better aid. Yeah, yeah. I love to see it. I love, I love both of these programs. It's, <laughs> it's interesting. I've spent all of this, we've slightly had this thing where I, I have to act like I'm not excited about global global <laughs> health and well-being stuff. But I just, whenever I see breakthroughs in this in this work, like, yes, they're going to send a whole lot of aid on, on really good stuff. Or I was just so happy about the malaria vaccine breakthrough earlier this year. And also just the fact that there's so much damage done by this pollution and no one's doing anything about it drives me crazy. So seeing someone go into it, I'm just like, yes, humanity, finally. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's a lot of the heuristic that is part driving us of like, we should be able to make progress on things. The malaria vaccine one is super interesting, by the way, where I think some of the people we've talked to are like pretty nervous about how scalable the most recent, the vaccine that recently made headlines was. It's like, it requires three doses. I think it's pretty hard to scale. They're like There was something with the way it was tested that was like maybe the ideal time to test it. So I'm not actually sure that that one is necessarily going to be a huge breakthrough. But from what we've heard, like 
mRNA vaccines, basically, as have been developed for COVID and have had a huge impact and been de-risked, people are pretty optimistic. And they think you might be able to make like some next generations of vaccines that will just be like vastly more effective. And I think it's like, what, what a cool synergy and breakthrough that like, you know, COVID will have like accelerated that new technology to have such a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. Just while we're on these two new programs that you're probably going to launch, I guess, yeah, one of the most requested audience questions was like, why doesn't OpenFill fund X or Y or Z? Uh, my favorite thing. Maybe the, the most common one that I've heard is why doesn't OpenFill fund more work on mental health? I guess most speculatively, perhaps, you know, things to do with psilocybin or cutting edge treatments that might really uh, be valuable for treating serious mental health issues. Yeah. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah. So historically, Good Ventures actually had done a little bit of work on sort of like the psilocybin and MDMA and funded some some relatively early research and some of the clinical trials that folks have done there. I actually think that field has just advanced a ton and now there's a lot of like commercial funding. And so I think on the margin, it's less obvious to me that like a ton of philanthropic funding is needed going forward. That's not to say there's not stuff to do. We haven't kept up with it actively, but I, I think it is a case where it's like pretty interesting to see the progress. And I think it's a pretty cool example of progress that has happened. On the mental health, I think it's, it, it's on our long list. And so if, if anybody wants to join our cause prioritization team to help us work through more things, I think that there, there plausibly are good opportunities there. I guess the one thing I would gesture towards is basically, yeah, again, bed nets are really, really cost effective. And so if you can save a life so cheaply, it can be hard. Like there's just, mental health is often just like not as well understood. The interventions are often like not super effective sometimes quite expensive. And so the relative cost to improve things relative to just like letting somebody live and grow up and take a shot can often be pretty high. So it's not to say that we shouldn't do more on mental health. We're interested in doing more. We're interested in understanding more, but it leaves me, I'm not, I'm not like super optimistic that we're going to find stuff that we think is more cost effective than the Gilwell Hop charities there. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So is it, it has to be perhaps apps that can be delivered at massive scale for almost no marginal cost, or I suppose, if SSRIs work reasonably effectively, they cost cents per per day, I think. So maybe you could get some some traction there. And I, I guess some people kind of make the case that depression is actually significant, like or severe depression is significantly worse than worse than death, at least like on a per day basis. And then maybe that will give it give it a slight edge. So I think that last case is actually kind of what you need to make things pencil is my impression. And so like, yeah, if, if you have a moral theory that allows like value to go very negative. Similarly, I think you can think that pain is really bad. And so like, you might want to like, make sure that people like have access to opioids, if they're like, you know, suffering from like bone cancers. So there, there are people who work on this stuff and, and know a lot more about it than I do. We funded a little bit of like relatively basic work on on pain and non-opioid painkillers on somewhat similar grounds. So like, that's another kind of diversification that you could do. And I think it's not crazy. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like there's three roles that you're potentially hiring for. The South Asia Air Pollution Program lead, a lead for the global aid advocacy, and then I guess also people to join the course prioritization team where they could consider questions like, is, is mental health going to be competitive with Give World Job Charities? Yeah, maybe let's just go through them one by one. And maybe could you explain the kind of person who would be a great, a great fit for it? So either if there's someone in the audience or someone in the audience knows someone who would be suitable for it, they can pass it on. Yep, that's awesome. So on global aid advocacy, we're looking for somebody who probably has a lot of experience in India. Or sorry, I said global aid advocacy, but I meant South Asian air quality. And we're looking for somebody there who has a lot of experience in India, probably on either policy around something like air quality. So if it's not air quality, maybe climate or a related topic, or somebody who has like a lot of air quality experience, but maybe not as much policy background. And then that's sort of the background. And then we're also looking for somebody who's sort of like relatively open fill-ish in their outlook and strategic thinking, right? So like comfortable with explicit expected value thinking, trying to maximize, trying to have as much impact as possible and not just you know, do some of everything and to be very analytical about their work. 
And so I think that's going to be a really hard role to fill. And frankly, if like we don't end up finding somebody for it, like we might just not actually enter the space because we always think that having the right program officer is just a really key ingredient to being able to do the work. And so that's not to say that we definitely wouldn't. Maybe we'd try to reallocate somebody or, or hire somebody else. But that person in that seat for us is like really, really crucial. Global aid advocacy is a pretty similar recipe where we're looking for somebody with a lot of experience in that field. That field is significantly bigger. And so I think there's more potential people to draw on. It could be sort of anywhere. Like, you know, we, we could imagine somebody who's more focused on Europe or somebody who's more focused on the U.S. And it could be somebody who's more has a background around like advocating for more aid or working in you know the legislature or something like that. Or somebody who's more focused on effectiveness and like, how do you make aid dollars go further? And, and has that more of that perspective. And again, looking for somebody who's really quite analytical, quantitative, comfortable like with thinking through like, okay, what is the ex- expected value of a different strategic approach or a different grantee in that world? And then on the cause prioritization side, we actually have two different roles. So in the past, we've only ever hired for this research fellow role, which is a little bit more academic, a little bit more focused on social science. But we're also hiring for the first time a new strategy fellow role. And a lot of the work will be the same, you know, reviewing reports, talking to experts, sort of doing some of these back of the envelope calculations. But the research fellow is more focused on sort of like research skills and social science and like really trying to interrogate complicated academic papers. Well, the strategy fellow role is like more on like engaging with practitioners and experts and doing quicker sort of like more assumption driven calculations. I think in terms of background, like it's pretty likely that the research fellow has like maybe some graduate training in economics, or at least like could have gone that direction. And the strategy fellow role might be more folks who are coming out of like consulting or buy side finance, or maybe some think tanks, you know, where they're more interested in like spending some time talking to people, but also comfortable, you know, thinking in spreadsheets and things like that. Yeah. Great. I guess normally we'd spend a bunch of time talking about, you know, what's the office culture, what's distinctive about, about OpenFill. But people who are interested to hear that can probably go back and listen to the interviews with, I guess, Lewis Bollard, Ajay Kotra, David Rudman, and I guess Holden Karnowski, I think back in 2000, 2018. So we have, we have quite a few interviews with people from, from OpenFill. So maybe, we, maybe we've got that covered. I'm glad to be able to join the crowd. And full disclosure, aren't we one of ADK's uh, largest funders? You are, and I will say that in the and we'll say that in the intro. Yeah, is there anything you want to add? Maybe that's that's new or a, a different take you have on on who would be a good fit for OpenFill. No, I, I think the the roles that we're hiring for are very much loaded on sort of overall OpenFill culture for the global health and well-being cause prioritization team. It might be a little bit more like econy and a little bit less philosophy by background, but a lot of the folks that we've hired in the past have been sort of like EA adjacent. But we'd welcome folks who've never heard of EA and have no idea, or folks who are diehard fans. So I think yeah, a lot of people could do really well. Yeah. What are some of the kind of biggest wins that you're most proud of from the global health and well-being program? Because I guess you've been involved in some sense in this over the, over the last 10 years. There must have been some really exciting moments. Yeah, a few things stand out to me. So one is just I, I think that the work on cage-free campaigns and especially taking them international has been really impressive. A lot of the work in the U.S., I think a lot of that success was baked before we came along, but I think we came in and sort of saw that and helped really scale things to the next level. And I think that's a huge testament to Lewis and his work and to a bunch of the grantees like the Humane League and a number of others that have done really impactful work, just like change how how chickens are treated around the world. And there's just like astronomical numbers there. Another example is like, this is one that probably is a little bit weirder for your audience, but, you know, we've funded for several years around macroeconomic stabilization policy. And I think the Federal Reserve and macroeconomic policymakers in the U.S. have really moved our direction and adopted a lot of more expansionary policies and more focus on increasing employment relative to worrying about inflation. I think it's really hard to attribute impact. So I'm not sure how much of that has to do with our funding, but it's an area where I think like the world has really moved our way and we might have played a small role in that. And the stakes, I think, are like 
quite high in terms of human well-being there. So I see that as a big win. One of our grantees there has actually been able to go on to help other open-fill focus areas think about how to prevent the next pandemic. And so I see that as like a good example of the kind of like synergy I was talking about earlier. One, one more interesting example from just like science is a broad spectrum flu vaccine that's now in phase one human trials with the NIH. And I think it could mean that eventually people wouldn't have to get seasonal flu shots anymore. And it could also help reduce future pandemic risk. And so, you know, that's phase one. That's still really early, but it's actually a good example of how like, I think we funded that work almost five years ago and like science just takes a long time to play out. And so, you know, we'll, it'll be interesting to watch that sort of evolve over the coming years and see if it does end up, you know, getting into humans and, and making a difference. Yeah, some uh, some pretty big successes there. This raises the question, to what degree can you successfully empirically quantify the expected value of these science and policy grants against GiveWell's top charities, given that in this kind of hits-based business where you like fund a research project and like it may have a massive impact or probably it'll have no impact, like the whole portfolio could be paid for by a single success. Like you could imagine that you'd funded hundreds of science research projects and like they were all busts, except for this mRNA vaccine <laughs> one, say, and then suddenly the COVID pandemic happens and then it pays for all of it and then and then a, and then a whole bunch more. It seems like our estimates of kind of the expected value ex ante of these projects is just always going to be incredibly, incredibly uncertain. I think that is extremely correct. Um, <laughs> one, one bias I have, and again, this is more of a bias than I think a, a true view is that it's like, there's sort of more things that force your ex-ante expected value estimates up than down. And so that makes me usually think that they're probably biased up. And it's just, you never give yourself a negative expected value. You just want to make the grant. These are hard things to do. They're they're done by program officers who want to make the grants. So I I think there's a lot of structural forces that make you more likely to overestimate cost-effectiveness ex-ante. And so we we don't do cost-effectiveness estimates for every grant. We want to be able to do things where it's like, it's a structural argument or it's sort of much more like cluster thinking rather than sequence thinking. But yeah, we do think about this and, and we do think like if a whole portfolio, according to our own estimates, is not looking like it's as good as the give all top charities, that is a reason to step back and say like, is this actually justifying the work? Yeah. It's interesting that on the macroeconomic stabilization stuff, and I know listeners to this show are obsessed with macroeconomic stabilization, so let's let's dwell on it a little bit. It seems like the kind of groups that you are funding have totally won the argument, or there's been a massive sea change in macroeconomic policy regarding you know fiscal policy, mon- monetary policy, and yet this is kind of one of the programs that you're kind of winding down, or at least you don't make many grants to anymore. Is that maybe just because you spotted an opportunity where there needed to be a change, and now that change has kind of happened, and now you're just not sure in which direction? direction you want to push macroeconomics anymore. Yeah. So we're not, we're not totally sure about the future of that program. We're not actively winding it down, but we haven't been doing a lot more. And we have been thinking about pivoting a little bit more to work on Europe there, where if you just compare the EU policy response to the Great Recession to the American one, I think it's like, there's a huge gap. And also like, frankly, the, the recoveries to the Great Recession, like as much as I complained about the US policy response, the degree of like self-inflicted wounds by, by European monetary policymakers is, is I think genuinely somewhat astonishing. And so obviously like, there's concerns, you know, we're an American funder. We don't, we don't know as much about policy in Europe as we do about the U.S. And so there's risks there. And we, we try to be cognizant of those. But I think we, we might do continue to do a little bit more in that space and, and focus more on Europe. Or at some point we might say, like, I don't know if it would be literally declaring victory, but we'd say, like, we're not sure that actually, like, there's a ton more that we need to do here. The case doesn't look as good as it did before. Why don't we step back? Yeah. Yeah, I guess in the US, I slightly worry that possibly the pendulum has swung too far in, in the other direction, that uh, people always respond to the last thing that went wrong. And now perhaps we've, we've overlearned the lesson from, from 2008. But in the EU, it doesn't seem like people have learned the lesson from 2008 all that much, that it seems like the EU would basically go and do exactly the same thing again, uh, which yeah. is strange. I agree, it's strange. 
All right, let's push on and talk about a really interesting and unusual thing that you did, which is just volunteering to hand over your kidney to a total stranger in order to save their life. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about what that experience was like and what motivated you to do that? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a funny story because I got interested in it while I was still in college. I, I think I was like a college senior who was about to join GiveWell. And I, I think I emailed Holden and Ellie to say, hey, by the way, like I'm already kind of far along in this process. Can I take a month off at some point to go donate a kidney? And I think they were like, oh God, who did we hire? Who is this person? Um, <laughs> but my motivation was actually like pretty normal, I think. Pretty typical utilitarian considerations. Like the benefit to the recipient is pretty big. Like I think you can extend somebody's life by about 10 years in expectation. I ended up donating to start a chain of basically like people who had somebody who wanted to donate to them, but who's not a compatible donor. And so I think my chain had like six steps in expectation. I think that that probably only translates to maybe like one extra donation, but still, I think that's like an increase in the expected value. And then the risk to the donor in surgery is small. Like it's roughly a one in 3000 risk of death in surgery. And though I actually think that the long-term health risks are probably an order of magnitude higher there. I think I remember when I first heard about this and I remember just thinking like, wow, like these donors seem really weird. I do not understand the appeal of this at all. And I, there was like a New Yorker profile that Larissa McFarquhar wrote. I remember, I remember reading it being like, these people seem so weird. And then I, somehow I came across it separately later on and I, it was in a separate context and somebody was just writing about other people who donated and the fact that it was really safe. And I was like, oh wait, so this is not like a crazy decision. It's just like you run a very small calculable risk to yourself and it can benefit other people a ton. And I was like, oh, okay, like that makes a lot more sense to me. That might seem like a good decision, like a very reasonable way to help other people. And I like to think about like, sort of like what are lots of reasonable ways to help other people, not just like one. Yeah. Hold on. So just to get the, the numbers out here, did you say it was a one in a thousand or, or one in a 10,000 risk of death as a donor? So I think the numbers are like one in 3,000. Uh, and that's basically like the death in surgery. Okay. And if you're like relatively healthy, it, it's lower. And then I think that the, the long-term risks to your health, they're harder to track, right? Because it's hard to do like the 20-year follow-ups. And frankly, donation, like living donations actually like relatively, it's not, it's not an ancient phenomenon. And so there's not like, you know, millennia of data there. But I think that the long-term increase in your risk of kidney disease might be like something like one percentage point, I think. And so that, that's significantly bigger than the, the one in 3,000 risk of death in surgery. I'm a bit of a techno-optimist. I think that eventually we'll be able to get kidneys for human transplantation from pigs probably, or be able to grow them in a vat or whatever. And also they jump you to the top of the waiting list if you're actually a kidney donor. So I'm not too worried for my own sake. Okay. Yeah, so I don't actually don't understand why people think that this is so strange because a one in a 3,000 risk of death is like, it's not absolutely negligible, but people take that kind of risk all the time in other jobs that they take in order to, to benefit other people or even just they use more than one third of their life doing something highly unpleasant because they think it benefits others and it probably has less of a benefit than saving multiple people's lives. So what's what's going on? Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's actually even worse than that. I think people do that all the time for like fun. Like I think, I think the risk of death from like climbing Everest is like significantly higher than that. And, yeah. and so like, if you could climb Everest- <laughs> Admittedly, I do to... think that is a bit nuts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I think it's like an order of magnitude or two higher. So yeah, fair. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, I mean, it's, the other thing I use is I think it's around the same as the, the risk of death in giving birth, which is a totally, I mean, people do it all the time, right? And yeah, I, I don't have a good sense. I think, I think it's honestly not about the risk of death. I think it's like the bodily integrity thing is doing a lot of work in people's minds. And I'm a relatively more like, I don't identify that much with my body. I'm a little more in my own head or something. And so for me, that just wasn't a huge, wasn't a huge obstacle. Do some of the people who think that it's a really odd thing to do, maybe just massively overestimate how dangerous it is? 
it, totally possible. And obviously people are terrible about reasoning about small risks. So that seems like a, a very plausible idea. But I don't actually think people think that it's deadly. Like, I think people think it's weird in some sense, you know? And so, so I don't think that they think that you're running a risk to yourself. I think they're like, it's almost like they're just like, you're agreeing to surgery, you know? It, it, so it's like, even if you were definitely going to live out of it, there's a sense of which like giving something of yourself up in a, in a fairly costly way, right? Like I, I took a few weeks off work, I, like it's moderately painful. I think people are weirder about that sacrifice than they are about like literally the risk of death. But I, I could totally be wrong. This is folk psychology. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll come back to that in a second. But how does this fit into the kind of the, the broader ethics of your life? Like, do you think it's kind of comparable in impact to your work at GiveWell, say? Yeah. Personally, I, I really am interested in trying to be a good person from sort of like multiple perspectives or in like multiple magisteria. Like, I'm not that interested in in that question. I actually think like soon after I donated a kidney, I got this into the back and forth with Jeff Kaufman, who's, a, who's an effective altruist in Boston, who I really like. And he was sort of saying like, look, it doesn't seem that rational to donate a kidney. Like the benefits are only as good as saving a life. And if I give to GiveWell, I can save a life for something like $5,000. And I would definitely rather not donate my kidney than spend $5,000. And so I face this choice and I would like rather give $5,000 more to donate my kidney. So I'm just not going to donate my kidney. And I don't think that that's like literally wrong, but I, I guess I want to deny that you face that choice. It's like you have a choice about whether to donate a kidney and you have a choice about whether to donate more money. And I'm pretty happy with those being sort of like separate reasonable choices that you can think about within their own framework rather than sort of driving to like everything to be in totally comparable units and, and having like only one overall decision where you think about your donations in exactly the same way as you think about your career in exactly the same way that you think about whether to donate a kidney. Another thing that comes to mind for me on this is that like, I have a one-year-old daughter and I think that having kids is like a remarkably pro-social good thing. Not like the EA best thing you could do. Like this is the most cost effective way to help other people, but just like normal run of the mill. Good. Like, I, I think it's a good thing for the world, not a bad thing for the world. And I think it would be good if more people did more of it. And so I actually kind of see it as like a weakness of the EA community that it feels like because of effectiveness, we're so focused on like our main advice being like the biggest things, like really cost effective uses of money and like big uses of your career. But I actually think having like other suggestions for people to consider as part of what it means to be like a good person or an altruistic life would actually just be good. Like people might do them and that would be good. And then also I think it could help with like community growth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with the sentiment that I think it's really dangerous for people's life to just become focused on one thing and also just like only having kind of one goal. And I guess occasionally you see that with effective altruism, people want to justify everything in their life in terms of the impartial impact that it has. And I just think that's kind of a, a path to nowhere. It often, often leads to people to be kind of unhappy. And, it, and it, it's much more practical as a real human being to have multiple different goals and multiple different parts of your life that you each kind of optimize and you put some resources into because you care about all of those goals in, intrinsically for different reasons. I might push back on like a little bit of that though. Like if I was talking to someone who was trying to decide, should I work to make money to save a life by giving to give well, or should I give my kidney and say their salary was high enough that, you know, over the course of a week, they could make enough money that it would save more lives and say they would rather go to work than have their kidney taken out. Then it does seem like you can kind of make a dominance argument that it like saves more lives and is more pleasant for the person. Totally. And I'm really open to that dominance argument. And I think it's correct in some cases, but like, I don't know, Jeff works at Google and Google will give you a month off if you donate a kidney. So like the the concrete like trade-off like is not forced. And also I don't actually think his view is crazy. Like if you were trying to always be perfectly scrupulous about every decision that you would make, you would go crazy. So like some sense of like triaging or prioritizing, I actually think is like totally correct and healthy. This was in the space of decisions I felt like it was big enough and interesting enough and I, I felt good about. It. it was like a concrete way to help people. But if you were like, yeah, just like, I don't know, not everybody's vegetarian because, you know, people make different trade-offs. I, I don't think that that's crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. And they focus on having a positive impact in different aspects of their lives where I guess it's kind of a trade-off between the, the impact that it has on the world and how much it matters to you to make that change. Let's come back to this question of people think that it's so strange to, to give your kidney. I guess I just cannot put myself in the mentality of, it sounds like you're saying people have this intuition that bodily integrity is somehow extremely important and that like ever losing anything from your body is just pro tanto, extremely bad, or like you shouldn't do it except for like the most extreme reasons, which I guess even saving someone's life doesn't rise to the occasion of being a sufficiently extreme reason. Can you put yourself in that, in that headspace better than I can? No, <laughs> I'm too much of a utilitarian. Um, okay. honestly, like, but not even a utilitarian, just a pragmatist. Like, Yeah, I, I really don't get it. Around the time when I donated, I actually wrote, like, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that we should allow people, like basically have a government compensation system for people who want to donate. Because there's just like an addressable shortage where like you can donate and live a totally good life. It's not very risky. This is fine. And like there's a government system for allocating kidneys to the people who need them the most. And it would actually literally save the government money because people are mostly on dialysis, which is really expensive and it's very painful and you die sooner. And so giving them a transplant, just like it saves money, it extends life and like just like not enough people sign up to do it voluntarily. And so if we like, we can make it worth their while. And similarly to how we like pay cops and firefighters to take risks, you know, I, I don't feel like this is some crazy idea, but I think that the reason it doesn't happen is actually like opposition from people who have like a sense that they're both worried about coercion and a sense of like bodily integrity as something inviolable. I can't say that word. Inviolable. <laughs> that makes them feel like there's something really bad here. Honestly, like I think the Catholic Church is actually like one of the most important forces globally against in any country allowing people to be compensated for donation. And yeah, it, it's like very interesting because I, I just do not share the intuition. I mean, if you think about it as treating people as a means to an end, like I, I could imagine it. Like if you thought it was like we're super exploited a system where, where the donors were treated really badly, I feel like I, I can get myself but, in the But then it just seems like you could patch it by raising the amount that they paid and treating people better. So yeah, that, it's like so if you treat people better be and it's like one of the things I said in my op-ed, I think was like, look, we should, just, we should pay people and treat them as good people, right? Like a little bit like this paid surrogacy, I think like people have bioethical sort of qualms about it sometimes, but like by and large, people think of surrogates as like simultaneously like motivated by the money and like good people doing a good thing. And I think we should kind of aspire to have like a similar system with like state payments for people who donate kidneys where it's like you did a nice altruistic thing and you know, it paid for college or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I have strong feelings about this, about this topic. It's one of, one of the ones that kind of drives me to become a frothing at the mouth person. <laughs> it's extremely frustrated with the people, people that I'm uh, debating with. I mean, I, I have looked into this a lot and like, considered a lot of counter arguments. And as far as I can tell, the arguments against allowing people to sell their kidneys voluntarily under a like, suitably regulated system are all terrible. I think like there's actually no good ones, basically. And it, obviously this isn't like the most pressing problem in the world because the stakes are like tens of thousands of lives in America, say, I guess globally it would be hundreds of thousands of lives potentially. So there's, there's bigger issues, but it is just astonishing that just through not being willing to do moral philosophy properly or not being willing to get over our disgust and think about things sensibly, we're not only like allowing 100,000, hundreds of thousands of people to die globally, we're like forcing them to. We're like using state-backed violence to prevent people from taking voluntary actions that would save their own lives and cure their diseases. So I think of these as kind of like government-backed killings every time someone dies because they weren't able to buy a kidney in time before before they died. And I just think it's pretty appalling. I, I, suppose, <laughs> I don't know whether we want to go through the various back and forth of the arguments here. You, you agreed with me too strongly. Now, now I have to take the other side, you know? Okay, go for it. 
I guess like one one of my professors in college has written on this, uh, Deborah Satz, and I think her perspective is like she's she's really worried about sort of the egalitarian implications of allowing payments in the sense that if you give people offers that they can't refuse, or like if you allowed people to like collateralize their kidneys, which you might if it was like genuinely a pure market, you could end up with people in like very bad situations, even though like ostensibly you were trying to widen their choice set. I will admit I don't find this argument myself, and I, I probably didn't do the best job rendering it also, so you, you might want to go check out her book. Um, but um, I don't find this super persuasive, just given the stakes of like the lives at stake, that it feels like sort of too much weight on that kind of concern to me. And I also feel like if you're really worried about poor people donating under duress, like you could only allow rich people to donate. Like I feel like there's like very valid corner solutions for the kind like you could have a long waiting period. You could make people take mental health evaluations. Like you could only allow people to use the money for like very like pro-social things. Like charity might not be incentive enough, but like maybe um, college or, you know, whatever. So like you, you could imagine systems that work here to solve the problem and not cause the social harm that people are worried about. Yeah, but I I have found it frustrating also, and it, it strikes me as like the kind of thing where it's like it's not the world's biggest problem, but it is like a frustrating own goal where like policy actually is a big part of the problem, and like if you just got out of the way a little bit more, people could just flourish. Yeah, I think so. I think I said they're either all bad or they're all solvable, and I guess the I don't know exactly what I think about people borrowing money against their kidney. I guess it, I also feel nervous about that. That doesn't sound so great, but it seems like you can just ban that and say you can never collect someone's kidney. You can never force them to give up their kidney. If you like try to do that, we'll stick you in prison. So there's almost always a much narrower solution to these problems than, than banning it outright. And on the idea of an offer you can't refuse, I think the notion there is that the price would be so high that someone would feel like they, they can't say no. But I would love someone to offer me a price on my kidney that's so high that I can't imagine saying no. The only thing worse than an offer you can't refuse in this context seems like not getting an offer that you can't refuse because <laughs> almost by necessity, it's so much money that you value the money much more than you want the kidney. So... I'm pretty sympathetic to that and to the argument, the background argument for autonomy. That makes me wonder, like, should, should I like try to trigger you by like, do you want to talk more about your feelings towards bioethicists as a profession? Because I, I feel like some of the COVID <laughs> stuff too, it might have come up and it seems like a related argument. Uh, I have a lot to say about that, but I think I think maybe we'll have to save that for, for another episode. I, I have been trying to line up someone to discuss bioethics as a potentially potentially important area of, of, of policy reform. Uh, fingers crossed we'll, uh, we'll manage to get an episode out in that in the next year or two. And I'll have to do my best to maintain my calm, I think, during, during that recording. Oh, one just final thing is people worry alternatively about the price for kidneys being too low. But I mean, you might also worry about the price for labor being too low, people being paid too little. But with that, we realized that the answer isn't to ban work or to ban jobs or people ever being paid for doing stuff. We think that the answer is probably a minimum wage or unions or something like that. Or just, yeah, I mean, government top ups, right? And I think similarly on, on like, even if the market clearing rate for a kidney was, you know, only $10,000 or something, like if, if you're worried that's not enough for people to take the risk reasonably, like, it is worth it just from like a literally a health system savings perspective to pay up to like 100K. So there's so much surplus to go around here that I'm like, we can make this work. Yeah, well, one more thing I'll say is I've been astonished by people who I kind of normally think of as being very thoughtful and analytical, how they'll they'll give in to their feelings on this one, where they feel that they just feel revolted by the prospect of someone selling their selling their kidney. 
I guess, especially maybe if they think it's not enough money or, or whatever other reason. But I think it's just so important in these cases where the, where the stakes are, you know, many people, many people's lives to step outside of that and not allow yourself to be guided by disgust, which has just been historically an atrocious guide to, to moral behavior. Like people used to think it was blatantly obvious that homosexuality was grossly immoral because they found the idea disgusting. I don't think anyone accepts, or at least like I can imagine very few people in the audience accept that that is a legitimate argument now. But similarly, the fact that people find the thought of someone selling a kidney kind of distasteful, I just think is no more, no moral guide to whether it's good or bad. I agree with that. And I also think like people had the same concerns about like living donation originally. Like there's these weird Freudian analyses of like- About IVF? Yeah, like how you would have to be messed up in order to like voluntarily, you know, sacrifice yourself for a sibling or something. And so a funny thing though is that nobody like- says that to me because they're like, oh, oh, oh like that, that's so perverse. How could you do that? Like people, people say nice things to me. So I, I don't get this argument as much as you might get when it comes up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I guess let's wrap up on the, on the kidney section. If anyone didn't like what I said, you can send your complaints to podcast at 80,000 hours.org. Uh, uh, I guess the, the only thing I'll add is, uh, yeah, I think it's fantastic that you, that you gave your kidney, Alexander, but it made me think a lot more of you at the time and, uh, and it's still, still with us today. Thanks. Um, We've been keeping you for quite a while, so we should we should let you get back to managing this enormous enormous uh, program at Openfill. I guess you've been around for for ten years though, so I'm curious to know whether you have any kind of great, entertaining, or interesting stories from the earlier and no doubt far more scrappy days of, of GiveWell back in 2011, 2012, 2013. Yeah, totally. I think when I joined, yeah, there were four other people, and we worked in a co-working space in New York. And, you know, we would just like argue with each other loudly about population ethics and like the cost per life saved for different charities. And my recollection is that like the basically the graphic designers who worked at desks around us were all just like, who are these people? Like, what is going on? <laughs> um, and like, another another sort of like fun, early, small GiveWell moment was like, I think at one point in that first year, we went bowling and GiveWell paid for like a pitcher of beer. And I think we realized it was like the first time GiveWell had ever like paid for alcohol for a staff event. And I think we ended up sending like multiple donors, like a photo of the receipt to show that like we're, we're growing up, we're becoming legitimate and like, look how we're spending your money. <laughs> I, I guess like a, a, a slightly more serious one is just that like, I have this memory of a highlight from early on, which is like Holden staying late one night to argue with me, trying to convince me that the way I had thought about taking the job at GiveWell was like totally wrong. And he convinced me actually. And I came away thinking that, well, like I might have been thinking about it wrong. Like I had definitely ended up in the right place because it was like somebody who was able to like engage really deeply with like my weird marginal value argument that had like gotten me to give well and say like, you're totally wrong. And in a very interesting, convincing way, but also made me think like, okay, but like I'm here for the wrong <laughs> reasons, but like, wow, I want to be this around is, these this people. Is really like where I should be. Uh, and obviously like I've been really lucky over the last few years to grow a lot with give well and then with open fill as we spun out. Was was Holden arguing against you coming to give well in effect, or yeah, yeah basically it was like, it's, coming yeah. to give well isn't as effective as you as you were claiming it was? No, not that it wasn't <laughs> as effective as I was claiming it was. That that like my thinking on it had been wrong. So basically, I had I had been trying to decide between give well and like a nonprofit organization that like consults for other organizations, like bigger and more established at the time. And I thought like, well, look, if they don't hire me, they're going to hire somebody else just like me. They get like two hundred applications for every job. Whereas at the time, I was like, oh, give well, if they don't hire me, they're not going to hire anybody. So like. I get sort of full counterfactual credit for my contribution at GiveWell. Whereas at the other organization, I would have only gotten like a very small portion of my counterfactual credit. And I thought like, because they were bigger and more established, like that cut the other way. And so Holden convinced me that that's kind of thinking about it wrong. And like, I was only thinking about like one step in the chain of like displaced jobs. And if you, if you think about more rigorously about all the subsequent displaced steps in the job chain, under some assumptions, you can come back to thinking that like the first order impact of the job is actually a closer estimate of your impact than like, the difference between you and the next person in that job. 
And those are controversial assumptions. I don't think that this is like obviously correct, but I think it's a good example of how like sometimes like the first step towards like EA thinking can be like kind of misguided actually. And if you go later, like deeper and deeper, sometimes like it comes back around to like kind of the common sense approach. And that's definitely been like part of my journey over the last few years. Yeah, I can't tell whether Holden is terrible at recruitment or just or an absolute rec- recruitment genius. Exactly. <laughs> in this context of maybe it made you stay. Yeah, I, I end up feeling like I was in the right place. Uh, I know you want to end on that, but I guess I'll just end with a final plug for people to check out our jobs page because we, yeah, we'd be really excited for folks to apply and we think it's a really exciting, high impact place to work. Yeah. Just one final thing I was going to say is uh, your story of talking about population ethics and all of these bizarre moral considerations around graphic designers looking askew at you. I mean, I think I had exactly the same experience when I moved to Oxford to work at the Center for Effective Altruism and suddenly was yeah, surrounded by constant talk about you know what, what's going to be effective. It was, things were so new and there's all, all of these constant froth of, of exciting ideas coming out. Of course, we were sharing an office at the time with the Future of Humanity Institute. So I think like almost nothing that we could plausibly say or fund would, uh, would make them think <laughs> anything uh, strange about us. If anything, probably we were the normal ones in the office. <laughs> Maybe that's influenced my intellectual trajectory in a way I haven't fully appreciated. I'm sure it has. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really hope that someone in the audience can either fill one of those for one of those roles or uh, or find someone else who can. I, I'm going to be so sad if the uh, South South Asia air pollution thing doesn't doesn't get off the ground. I I would just I would just love to see that that program flourish. So best of luck filling all of those positions. Thanks so much. My guest today has been uh, Alexander. Thanks so much for coming on the Eighty Thousand Hours podcast, Alex. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad I'll get to listen to myself and and I'm sure feel great pain over my own voice. A few months ago, we launched a compilation of 10 episodes of this show called Effective Altruism, an Introduction. Uh, We chose those 10 to cover the most core material that we could find uh, to help listeners quickly get up to speed on where in broad strokes effective altruist research stands today. Uh, we're going to actually substitute this interview into that series uh, to cover the topic of global health and well-being work, uh, which we hadn't had a really good reference episode for uh, when we launched that compilation. I've been excited to see a regular flow of new listeners uh, starting Effective Altruism and Introduction, uh, even though we haven't kept actively promoting it, uh, which suggests that people are sharing it with other people that they know. If you'd like to see what other nine episodes we picked out uh, and get them all in a list so that you can listen to them in a convenient way, uh, just search for Effective Altruism wherever you get podcasts. Uh, and if you'd like to introduce someone to the show, uh, maybe just let them know that that compilation of key episodes is out there waiting for them. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio engineering is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts with plenty of links to learn more are available on our website and produced by Sophia Davis-Fogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.